Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So, let's get started. We are recording. Hello, everyone. Hi, everyone. We're in a group of three today, yeah. which is nice. Hi, hi. Yeah, and so who's, who's our third? We have Dr. Jonathan Winterman here for his, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have here as our special guest for today. Be super exciting. Yeah. We've been, it's been on the books for a while, but. Yeah. I mean, we see Jonathan like every day. A lot, yeah. yeah. Mark, he's our UCLA colleague. I think that's why it's taken so long for me yeah. to be here, because we just talk so much on a daily basis. Yeah, so. It's like seeing the important things in your own city. You never yeah. schedule time to do that. You're mm -hmm. like, oh, I'll go see Watts Towers eventually. And You're you describing never go. My, my life in Los Angeles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Like literally been to see nothing. Yeah, I've been to see Watts Towers because Julian had a field trip there, so oh. I actually went. But otherwise, or I would like, still have never seen it. When I lived in Philly, I never went to see the Liberty Bell. Yeah, because I'm like, yeah, it's right there. It's yeah. smaller than one it's would It's just expect a bell for... with a crack. But now, but now you're here. <laughs> I'm here and crack and all. I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to be here. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, we can get started. I'm gonna read your awesome bio. Oh, no. So. <laughs> Jonathan Winterman is currently academic administrator for ancient studies at UCLA. He first joined the UCLA community as a lecturer in Egyptology after completing his PhD at the University of Chicago in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations in 2018. His research focuses on kingship, divinity, and the purpose of sovereignty, topics which encourage reflection on our own social, religious, and political structures. In his administrative capacity, he organizes and assists faculty with the writing of grant proposals and works closely with the Global Antiquity Initiative, a program which advocates viewing the ancient world as a single connected expanse where no community is considered peripheral. I love it. Sounds yeah. awesome. And if I, if I may, mm -hmm. I, for those of you that want to know more about Jonathan Winterman, and of course we'll do this at the end of the episode again, and we'll let you say, oh, you know, where do I find more about you? But the article that you wrote for Journal of Near Eastern mm -hmm. Studies, I think, is a great starting point about the ethics of scholarship in Egyptology and what it means. And you had two scholars respond to that. And four. Four scholars four, responded. Yeah. Holy shit. I only remember two of them. But, I got four. Oh, because it went another round, didn't it? Yeah. And you responded. Then you had another set of responses. But, um, but essentially what you're doing is asking why we do what we do, mm -hmm. why it's important, and is it ethical to study something for its own sake? Mm -hmm. And how is that that fiction of apoliticism ethical? Mm -hmm. Is it? And how, how do we even justify our existence in a sense? And I thought it was super interesting and super deep, not scary deep, um, and, um, and, and just really important. Thank you. Yeah. you know, I, th I think it's, uh, especially I will say that it's a danger in our field because we're so busy. We're just mm -hmm. constantly so busy. And the way that we're trained in that uh, chaos yeah. is to critique very specific things that then there's a lot of things that we forget to critique because we just don't have the energy for. Yeah. And they require a level of self-reflection that we're, to be to be frank, we're not trained to do because mm -hmm. it's, it's um, you know, beyond the purview of traditional academia. Can you explain, and then Jordan, I swear to God, I'll let you ask questions and go get back to your script. But can you explain, because I like this idea and I feel it right now. And Kylie sitting over there feels it. And I know Amber feels it too. This busyness that you speak of, this like constant busy. When, when I started out, you could technically read almost everything that was coming out in the field. Mm. I couldn't, I mean, but 
because that's my own failing. But there were people around me who actually did make a go with this. Mm -hmm. Now it would be impossible. Now you have to be like, I'm this kind of Egyptologist or I'm that kind of Egyptologist. And I imagine it's very much the same for somebody studying Byzantine um, Istanbul or, or something. Any field, yeah. Constantinople, exactly. And that you, you have to specialize in certain areas of the field. But what do you what do you see as this, this busyness? Well, I think there's several things going on. It's also, I believe, and, and you can feel free to disagree here, uh, both of you, but I think it's gotten worse since yeah. uh, COVID has yeah. passed. Yeah. Uh, gotten much worse in a very strange way that's hard to articulate and I don't think we'll be really able to accurately do so still for years and years to come. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a really big challenge. I think there's traditional pressures uh, to kind of be aware, be able to have, to hold discourse on any topic within your wider academic mm -hmm. area. So you have to read a lot, consume a lot, yeah. critique in your mind a lot. So mm -hmm. there's that. What I, the way that I've learned to kind of get around that, and again, there are different strategies that different people have. What I found is helpful for me is to find one article or book that I really care about and that I really identify with. Rather and, than trying to read everything. Exactly. Yeah. And then from there to do a deep dive into that. So mm -hmm. well, who are the sources that they're citing? Uh, who's likely to receive this and to comment on it? Uh, so follow up with, with uh, those scholars, mm -hmm. you know, even if it's just a Google search kind mm -hmm. of or a, a search. Uh, I still use one, one of the best uh, libraries that I, I miss here yeah. is yeah. the archives at uh, the University of Chicago yeah, and the Oriental Institute yeah. or the OI. Um, and so I'll still use their search catalog to right. just be like, oh, I wonder, has this person done something yeah. recently? And then the production demands that are put upon us, yeah. either to publish or to do symposia and meetings. Mm -hmm. I mean, that. how do you see that? I mean, well, now I have three jobs, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> essentially, so I, I definitely feel that because it's the pressure to publish traditionally my own work, uh, the pressure to do research projects um, in conjunction with uh, faculty members that I'm working with at UCLA, yeah. uh, the you know teaching responsibilities and then also administrative and especially grant project responsibilities and don't get me wrong i love all of this and one of the reasons i'm so happy at ucla is because i love our colleagues and i'm i'm thrilled to help them do these things and thrilled to help you do these things um and well, i got I'd like to imagine we don't have a toxic work environment we absolutely so many do places do yeah. <laughs> so it's nice to not have that yeah um, and of course you know there are problems in every work environment of course. but absolutely there are so in my experience UCLA is, is such a smooth work environment, yeah. and I'm grateful to be here. But wow, do we have to work hard and stay busy? I mean, and for the grad students at UCLA, I mean, Jordan, you feel this deep in your mm -hmm. soul, right? How many jobs do you have as a grad student? Seriously, three. Like four, three, four? four? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because um, you have Getty. Getty. And you're my lead TA. TA. You podcast this, this <laughs> yeah. right? We do the substack. And then student. Yeah, and then the grad student, it's insane. Mm -hmm. And let alone balancing self-care yeah. and uh, social yes. you know, yeah. pleasures. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, that we try to do both here. Yeah. In this yeah. case, right? Double dip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little double. Well, since we're on the topic and we mentioned Chicago and stuff, what is your academic story in, in brief? In brief, okay. Thank, yeah. thank, thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. My, my academic story uh, starts... A long, long time ago, I would say, especially my ancient Egypt story. 
uh, starts like back when I'm sure we all likely had our first ancient Egypt phase, you know, with like the little chest that was the book that had the book in it and also had the stamps in it and yeah, maybe came yeah. with like the scrap of real papyrus uh-huh. and you could stamp your name in hieroglyphs. Yeah, the little activity books. I'm older books. than you guys. I never had any fucking chest. Like, you <laughs> buy at a bookstore, like a little cardboard thing that you would open up. Yeah, yeah, just like, yeah. yeah, like a little activity no, book. No, they didn't make that stuff. It was like, they just had real books. It was the pop-up book <laughs> for adult kids. Yeah. You know? oh it, was, like, it was like not the pop-up book for the masses, but yeah. the pop-up book to like make you still feel special because you were a nerd back then and, oh wow um and you or still like, could like sense it yeah i remember just playing like well. video games mm. egyptian themed video games yeah, oh, yeah. I, had, I had a good one yeah uh sphinx and the cursed mummy yes that was, oh my god yeah 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 <laughs> yep. so like it was like a mystery and like the sphinx like had internal rooms and stuff right I think we're thinking of a different one. Oh, okay. Um, in mine, uh, Seth was the bad guy. But yes, then it, it, and you were a character. Yeah. I played this too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you were like a mummy. Yeah, you were and, a like, mummy. Chorus. And and because it, it wasn't, it yeah. wasn't at the beginning. It wasn't Seth. Achnaton was the bad guy. Yes. You were like two non-common. Yes. Like was the bad guy. Achnaton yes. Was the bad guy. Yes. Yeah, I remember this too. I had this game too. And then, uh, but in the end, he turned out to be a manifestation of Seth. And then you, in the end, this was this is actually very Egyptologically accurate yeah. in some way. You had to recombine Seth and Osiris to make Ra. Shut up. Yeah, okay. it was very cool. That was a great wow. game, actually. And it was like, like kind of dystopian Earth. I remember there was like lots of lava and like scary yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. That but, was a fun game. But anyway, so yes. I played that. Um, <laughs> obviously, that was a major, major foundation. But uh, more so than, than that, which actually I consider tangential to kind of my real interest in Egyptology or ancient Egypt, I should say. Uh, kind of really began to flourish once I got into high school because mm-hmm. I remember in I was I was privileged to go to a grammar school or a kind of middle school lower school where um, you were permitted to do deep dives and encouraged to do mm-hmm. deep private dives school. private school yeah um, in Short Only Hills child. in Short Hills New Jersey which is a very fancy bougie bougie yeah. is the word I was looking for yeah. um, <laughs> still still a great school I still get their emails um, oh, yeah, I bet you do yeah but uh, like Quaker philosophy kind of. Oh, thing. you went to a friend's school kind of thing. Kind, kind of, yeah. not not explicitly, okay. but uh, similar philosophy. That's mm-hmm. right. And so was able to do a deep dive into ancient Egypt. Did a lot of readings. You know, nothing. I'm not going to yeah. say like I read college level material. Yeah. No, I was reading like Egyptian myths for children. Books, yeah, yeah. Uh, and had a great time doing it. And then got into high school. You know, where you get the 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 dump of a textbook that's world history yes. and it has you know ancient on egypt. egypt on the the cover but like ripping off the page yes. to the construction of a skyscraper yeah. like like a very linear, teleological view of history like very yeah. Linear, yeah. um and it has like two pages on every single civilization that mm-hmm. one yes. could think of every yes. single patriarchal civilization yes. that that produced a king that one could think of mm-hmm. yeah. and egypt was in there and i remember reading it and getting excited for it and just being like oh well, this is thing. this is not what I expected this to be. Um, This is, I think it's containing a lot of different information than the information I was previously given that I previously found. Mm. You didn't say this is bullshit, they got it wrong. You didn't go right for that. I mean, I so I could have been, I don't remember, I don't have the self-reflective ability to reflect (laughs) on how um, snotty I was back then, (laughs) but it's possible. I'm sure, I'm certain there is some of that in there, but I hope it was not all of it. But so I, th- from that point on, I was like, oh, well, let me go to just Barnes and Noble because Barnes and Nobles were still a thing when I was yes. in, in high school. Uh, so I was, you know, thinking, let me just go and, and see what books. books I could find and read these. And I did. And for some reason, I got it in my head that I wanted to be 
uh, an archaeologist. I think yeah. that was、uh-huh. the first and foremost thing on my mind. I wanted to go to, into archaeology and ideally Egyptian archaeology if I could.、Um, I applied to undergraduate programs based on that, based on、mm. uh, places or institutions that had an、uh, archaeology program. But you went to Princeton. I, I did. Well, they had an art, art and archaeology department. Oh, okay. Okay. And、uh, while I was there, in fact, they created a new archaeology specialization、mm. uh, within the department that you could follow. Okay. Um, so I was, and again, it was, I was just in the right place at the right time. I got really lucky、uh, to kind of have a group of like-minded、uh, students with me、um, who were also interested in this. So it wasn't like they weren't just, you know, doing this for one person,、yeah. but it was a, a response and supportive faculty as well. And from there,、um, applied to graduate programs and got without a, language, without Egyptian language. I did a little tiny bit of Egyptian language,、um, mostly with Professor Hare,、uh, who's a professor in comparative literature at Princeton. I believe he specializes in Japanese literature.、Huh. But he did Egyptian. But he does Egyptian. Published a book on ancient the Egypt. The gods and goddesses. He did like. Is it? Am I wrong in thinking that he wrote this book on Egyptian gods and goddesses? I don't remember that. I remember he has a one book called Remembering Osiris, which、yeah. he published while I was still a student. And then more recently, he's. I think he's come out with a translation of Sinuai, which kind of combines the visual、oh. aspect of the Egyptian、mm. language with the story itself. It's really. It's a really novel publication. I think it's great for students as well.、Huh. But、uh, so I took a few classes with him. Uh, but that was essentially the limit. My my language when I was in undergraduate was classical Greek,、yeah. and I did not take to this language. <laughs> me and、uh, me and Greek did not get along. That's interesting. Yeah,、uh, I think if I went back to it today, which I occasionally do for my research,、um, it's not as painful.、Yeah. But for some reason, it just didn't the it didn't resonate with me. Isn't it funny? Because then it's not. Oh, are you good at languages or not good at languages? It depends. Which language? What language gives you the feels that you want to have that that connects with you、mm-hmm. that tastes like the ketchup that you want to ketchup to eat?、Mm-hmm. You know.、Um, oh, why? Ancient Greek. I don't think I've ever heard anyone's like. Yeah, it's like super.、Eat. Like everyone's like traumatized by learning、I've, it. So when I was <laughs> taking it, I grew. I was raised in an environment where everyone was like, "Oh, you." You made an error. You made an accent error on this、oh. quiz. That's like kind of embarrassing. Oh, oh my god! <laughs>、yeah. So Ooh, toxic.、Gross. And it was done with kind of joke in a jokey manner. Yeah, yeah, but it explains、um, it still so hits. much. Yeah.、Um, but, but so so anyway, so、um, after my pretty sparse Egyptian philological training and my、um, you know maybe one and a half to two years of Greek at、yeah. Princeton, I decided that you know actually I really wanted to be an archaeologist first and foremost. I was really lucky to have a. a Fantastic advisor,、um, or multiple fantastic advisors, including Tom Hare, but also Beata Pongratz Leiston. Oh yeah, who's a specialist in ancient Near Eastern religion,、mm-hmm. who was my、uh, thesis supervisor, and、uh, essentially she helped me through the graduate admissions process, and、nice. I wound up at Chicago. Yeah, which I did not really fully realize the reputation that Chicago had at the time. But I, it's funny because Chicago has this reputation in our community for being very, very philologically、mm-hmm. oriented. Yeah. And I came in as an Egyptian archaeologist, wanting to do pre-dynastic archaeology、oh, with、uh, Nadine Muller. I'm still interested in state formation. Yeah. We're going to、yeah. actually kind of talk about this today, so everything might be coming full circle, which is and like Kara started also with pre-dynastic stuff too. It's like everyone, you know, your palettes. Yeah. yeah. These origins are are very. It's funny. Powerful topics that I think we all go through and we say,、yeah. oh. Oh, there's such an allure here,、yeah. and then we we learn to be cautious of that. 
So it was it was funny because I got to Chicago and I remember I took I was in two language classes my first quarter because mm-hmm. it was the quarter system, one with mm-hmm. uh, Jan Johnson, which was kind of the the, the mid level of uh, hieroglyphic script, mm-hmm. and one was introduction with uh, Robert Rittner. And I remember the first few days of being in, in Jan's <sighs> class, I was just like, I this is going to be a problem. This is really? this is a major problem. I don't know any of this. I'm. You know, I'm kind of feeling very nervous about how this is going to go. But then it really only took kind of, I'd say, six, five, five weeks in the intro class because I had had all this background in it where I was able to, you know, I knew my signs. Yeah. Mm. I knew my sign values. I knew my vocabulary. I just didn't really understand the grammar. And so that gave me a huge leg up. And the way that it was taught in Chicago really resonated yeah. Uh, with me personally, mm-hmm. and I fell in love with it. And ever since, I have not looked back. I have not looked back, and I have like been... archaeology. <laughs> you know, I, I still love art. So yeah. that was the other. No, they stole you. Well, the other thing that I should say is that um, I I was privileged to go on several archaeological excavations, which I had a fantastic time on all of them. Um, was well cared for on all of them. And at the same time, knew that I am too delicate for all of them. <laughs> I am the same. What did I just tell you when I got back from Egypt? I was like, I got so ill. Yeah. I was yeah. so yeah, sick. Yeah, your stomach always gets... And I just, I just always get knocked down. Yeah. And in Egypt, it's not always possible for me to get back up again. Mm. Um, Though I lost yeah. a bunch of weight in Syria. I which, lost 15 yeah. pounds on this last trip. I think I've gained five back. It's fine. It's fine. We get what we get. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then fell fell in love with um, the Egyptian language. Yeah, and at Chicago, you know, you're if you're in in the Egyptology track as opposed to the archaeology track, uh, you're uh, I think more than encouraged, but mandated to take every phase of the language, mm-hmm. right? Which I did. Which you did Akkadian too. I did Akkadian. You also have to take, uh, or you had That's to take right. at least a um, a secondary or language from a secondary area mm-hmm. of the the Near East, and so I took Akkadian also. Akkadian, there were there were more tears with Akkadian than there were with Egyptian, <laughs> but again had a series of great professors that so you did old, middle, late, Coptic, Demonic, Hieratic. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. And Ptolemaic hieroglyphs. And Ptolemaic too. hieroglyphs with which Robert. which we didn't do it at Johns Hopkins. We didn't have Ptolemaic yeah. hieroglyphs. It's a very I think as I gain knowledge taken of the it field. With John, yeah. 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 No, you survived. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. But I, I think it's a very it's could could traditionally it's considered like a, a puzzle. European field. Like where yeah. like the Europe it's one of the ways in which um European Egyptology like or academia or, yeah. feels superior to American Egyptology and academia. <laughs> um there is, I, I think, one, one of the of things... One of many ways yeah. that European Egyptology is, feels superior. I will be very yeah. critical, um, and I'm always very critical of the the bias that our field, ha- field has towards yeah. Oh, um, yeah. European scholarship. Just, yeah. It's a, it's People a who got jobs recently. Yeah. It's a Champollion divination. Yeah. And it hasn't stopped. So if we're talking about divinization of, yeah. of leaders... I enjoyed it because it was like a puzzle. Yeah. You had to solve this little, tw- like, little twister mind. Yeah game that the priests were like playing with each other yeah and sometimes they intentionally made it a puzzle and other yeah. times they didn't other yeah. times this is just the the way that they were communicating as they were slowly kept more and more in the temple i think well i think there's two things going on one is um kind of the way that theology mm-hmm. evolved where and this is something else i i write on currently where uh you really have this dichotomy and the identity the identity of the king of the gods amun ra mm-hmm. where you have his hidden identity and his yep. explicit identity. Um, so hidden as 
Amu and the Hidden One and explicit um, in the sky and visible to all as Ra, just as the hieroglyphic script is the same way. Because you have, you know, an image of the bull, which is clearly a bull for everyone else. But then for those that truly understand the hieroglyphic script is has this other meaning and, mm-hmm. you know, can be read in all these different ways. So, um, so that's on the one side of things. The other side of thing is um, uh, t- later Ptolemaic and especially Roman policy, uh, economic policy, which was like, no, no, if you're a priest, you stay in the temple, you don't go outside. So then they're encouraged to kind of, you know, be up each other's asses. And, yeah, um, <laughs> create the secret. Exactly, yeah. be, be extremely, Language. not only area, yeah. but also myopic, yeah. and then yeah. forget that the outside world exists. Kind of exists. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, you fell in love with all these languages, yeah. including uh, cryptographic texts, and you're at sh- Chicago. Mm-hmm. Then finished my language exams, yeah. and all of a sudden was like, oh, I need a dissertation yeah. topic. And struggled a lot in finding a dissertation it's topic. Hard. Though the interesting thing was, ever since I was an undergrad, one of the things that I was always interested in was sacred kingship and mm-hmm. divine kingship. Mm-hmm. And I remember being given, you know, kind of coming up with with all these, you know, as an under as an ambitious undergrad does, being like, I have ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And then people are like, Oh, <laughs> darling. This <laughs> and, has been done, that's been done. Yes. What's your take? How are you going to problematize it? Exactly. And so I was given the article um, by Lanny Bell mm-hmm. on the Royal Caw. Yeah. And Which for those people who don't know, the article by Lanny Bell on the Royal Caw in Luxor Temple is it's what they call quote unquote, a seminal text, very <laughs> patriarchal word, but we'll leave it there. But it's a, it's a, an article that has been taken as a kind of, um, the scripture, end all yeah. be all of how the, the king has this spirit that accompanies him everywhere mm-hmm. he goes called the, the Ka, the Royal Ka yeah. spirit. And that it, it can be found in a particular temple through ritual acts in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. And Lanny Bell created, in a sense, rules for how the royal ka mm-hmm. worked. Yeah, right? so that it was, yeah. it was basically that this represented the divine office of the king. Yeah. And the king was not divine. The king was otherwise human, mm-hmm. but that he fused with this office uh, at Luxor Temple, which is the temple that, that Lanny knew most intimately yeah. because he worked there for, for many, many years yeah. with the epigraphic survey. Um, which I also worked for later in life. Um, but uh, so it was that the king fused with the royal cod during coronation and then would have his possession of it reaffirmed during the Opet festival, which is one of the, the major Theban festivals together mm-hmm. with the beautiful festival of the Wadi or the beautiful festival of the Valley. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is essentially something that was plopped on my lap when I was an undergrad and I was told this, this, this is already, is been, this question yeah. has been answered. Um, you don't know enough to critique it. Uh, when you were so at Princeton. When I was at Princeton. Oh, okay. Which, in all fairness, I did not no, know enough didn't. to critique it. You just read it. And the first time I read it as a grad student, yeah, you're I like, did oh. not critique it. Yeah, yeah. you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah like, you brilliant. accept it as, like, yeah. that makes sense. And so uh, that was something that I would always return to because something never felt right with it. Mm. Something didn't quite sit right. And I can't really explain why or how, but it just felt like too easy a solution to too complex a problem. Mm-hmm. And one of actually one of the best classes that I took at Chicago, which is, a, it's actually a class that I, I a version of it I retaught uh, when I was here that I think Jordan, you took the sacred kingship yeah, class. That was fun. I took it with Bruce Lincoln and I was totally out of my element at the time because it was uh, all comparative, all theoretical. And you know, this was not <laughs> something that I necessarily had, uh, did not have time to have a background in because yeah. I was you know busy with, with language classes a lot of the times. 
Uh, but this class was really kind of a watershed and a really an eye-opener to me. That's cool. And so then after this, I started to read not only Egyptological literature, but uh, anthropological literature, sociological literature on sacred kingship, on, you know, uh, history of religions and on power as well. Was Solons and Graeber out yet? No. no. This was, this was Solons yeah. and Graeber came out in 2018, which is, I think, so the year oh, I wow, graduated. Yeah. So late. But then you were, uh, like, the Sacred Bow and all the stuff that we read. Yeah, the, yeah. the Golden Bow. Golden Bow, yeah. sorry, yes. Uh, so th that was, I was introduced and to... Frankfurt. Frankfurt, Frankfurt yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of other kind of <laughs> seminal texts. Yes. <laughs> as well as some other texts that were just kind of, um, you know, these are recent. Let's take a look at them together yeah. and talk yeah. about them. And so I had one failed dissertation topic. I had a second failed dissertation what topic. What do you mean failed? So like the, they didn't, the committee didn't accept? No, no, no. So there were there were things that I was thinking of that oh, never really came to fruition. Didn't manifest. So the first in here, here again, academia being hard on oneself. Yeah. But uh, the first one was the the Sokar cult in Thebes during the New Kingdom. That's interesting. Which I was researching. Yeah. Havu. And then I was given uh, a book that was basically like. The Cult of Sokar in the New Kingdom. And you're like, oh, who wrote that? Um, I'm going to butcher the name. Uh, I think it's Catherine uh, Heray Grandorge, I believe. Oh, okay, okay. And you're like, nope. Yeah, it's been done. I believe she's also published some things on the uh, Karnak under Amenhotep I. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, so I was actually by uh, my colleague at the Demotic Dictionary at the time, Francois, was yeah, like, yeah, so That's what are you mark. writing on? You might want to know about this book. And I was like, oh, thank you for telling me. Oh, wow. ah, so the then, worst. then I had a dissertation topic on um, goddesses as um, cosmocrators, like the goddess as the creator god. Yes, That's I awesome. love that. Very late. Yeah, very late. Mm. Um, Where they say that all gods are part male and part female and they're this much masculine. Or that one text feminine. we read where mm -hmm. it's like Neith is the... Exactly. Yeah. Or yeah. images of, of Hathor at Dendera where she's in the sun disk. Yeah. Yeah. And for some reason this never really came together. Yeah. And I was talking oh, cool. uh, about this with um, you know, both Robert at the time but also Ray Johnson. And I mentioned, he was like, Ray was like, well, what have you always been interested in? I was like, well, the royal Ka. And he was like, oh, well, why don't you focus on that? And focus on kind of how it was passed from, from king to king mm -hmm. by looking at the royal ancestor cult or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So then I started to do that. And, and that topic was received very well, not only by, um, you know, I loved it, but then also Robert really took, took a shine to it. And so then this became my dissertation topic, and then my life has kind of evolved from there. And essentially what I wound up arguing is that Bell's theory, while brilliant, is based on one, a, a limited number of mm -hmm. evidence. Um, it's based on a kind of misreading of a classical work of sacred kingship, which is The King's Two Bodies mm. by Ernest Kantorowicz. Uh, and Essentially, Based on a misreading of a theoretical text. I mean, not a not an Egyptian text. So I will say it's not really a theoretical text. That's probably maybe. yeah, misapplication of what it actually is. It's not a it's not really a theoretical text, but it's what it's more of is an in depth study of sacred kingship in the medieval Renaissance yes. and to some 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 extent absolutist periods. Right. Yeah. But it's very in depth. This is right. not like this is looking at uh, very very closely at you know, very specific primary sources, the type of primary source examined uh, changes, the, it does like not go like rain stuff. to rain yeah. kind of thing. And and scholars who are working with, and I mean medieval scholars who are working with how a king can be invested with divinity 
in a world that is not divine, that is profane and how, and, and have all kinds of, I assume Christian mm -hmm. um, theological understandings for how this can work and glossing it and arguing and coming back with other theories. Well, and mm -hmm. that the this king dies. The king is it's fallible, mortal. the king dies. Jesus king, died. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just read about David in the, in the Bible. He ain't an awesome dude. But anyway, yeah. yes. So, and, um, so basically, I think the the what Bell I think took from this text was that there are two bodies, which you know, Kintorwitz certainly does argue. But what he constantly stresses is how these bodies changed so much that they were not stable. That the second you articulated them, that this particular articulation started to break down, and so you had to kind of look at it from another aspect. Mm. Um, in, in a way, I think the way that it was framed to me in grad school was, um, if you view sacred kingship as a knot that you're trying to untie, and every time you pull one string, it might fix that, but then it creates five knots elsewhere right. in the glob that you're trying to work with. Right. And so that was kind of a very, that, that realization helped me a lot in being able to then critique this theory because it was taken so seriously by so many Egyptologists. And so then essentially, I, then my dissertation just argues for a different, different way of viewing kingship. Basically, it says that what Bell claimed that the royal call was, uh, he said that it was two things. It was both the divine body politic that is identical with the office and then also the call of the individual king. I said, no, no, it's just... It's only a Kani suit, you know, we don't have to, you take one, you take one translation from the Egyptian and don't make it two things. You just keep it one thing, mm -hmm. but right. you allow it to have ambiguity right. as a lot of terms of power that we use today yeah. have ambiguity. Who followed it the most slavishly in Egyptology? Uh, you mean secondary literature? Yeah. A lot of people, but all, most people, I will say most people that we're using it for other purposes. Mm -hmm. So it's most slavishly followed, and slavishly is, is a it's poor a, word. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> I started, I'm sorry. <laughs> I meant it to be pejorative, but it, we'll take it back, yeah. I take it back. No, but uh, it's, it's fine. Um, it was, I think it, you see it most clearly used in kind of secondary studies of divinity yeah. to be like, okay, well, we know that this is solved. Right. So now we're gonna look at X, Y, Z aspect mm -hmm, of, right kind of what crown the king will be wearing right. in this scene. And then we can equate the crown with the royal call. We can mm. equate the fact that he's called Nisut here and not Hemeth with the royal call. Yeah. You can kind of go crazy and because Egyptian religion is so fluid, yeah. just because you know the royal call is not explicitly shown in one picture, there was always a way that you could kind of circle back and say, well, no, 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 it really is here. Mm -hmm. um, so I went through and kind of really, in a systematic way, tried to disprove that mm. and then in the conclusion said well you know there there was certainly a royal con it could be a source of syncretism because mm. if you're king yeah. you have a connie suit if yeah. i'm king i have a connie suit yeah. and the egyptians love to do this kind of thing where they could say hey well there's you know if we have a connie suit if you have a connie suit yeah. i have a connie suit they could be thought of as the same thing mm -hmm. right? but this did not uh then kind of rule out their existence as individual cause as well right and so then basically the conclusion is like we need to look elsewhere and we need to think much more about a multifaceted approach to divinity just as Egyptian religion itself was so multifaceted. Yes, yeah. And then so I, you say syncretism and I think of Hatshepsut's cartouche as king, female king, when she adds the Henemet Amun, the, the one who is united with mm. or melds with the mm -hmm. god Amun. Mm -hmm. And it is a kind of syncretism. It's mm -hmm. like 
she's now part of this divinity and he is part of her. Yeah. And it's not a sexual thing. It is a, it is like a kind of mind melt. Mm-hmm. And the royal ka is implied, I suppose, but it's not really... There's no rules, mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like just like Amun-Ra and just like Tasoka or Osiris. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these syncretisms are possible. But you can have a syncretism with a human element if you're in the right place in the right time with the right responsibilities and and that's more what you're mm-hmm. you're talking about. But Luxor Temple is still a crazy interesting place. It's cr- yeah. It's a crazy interesting place. And here's where I should also say that I was aided in my own research by uh, Wolfgang uh, Whitekus, uh-huh. um, who did a study of Bell's work in or did a study of Luxor Temple through the lens of Bell's work mm. and was like, you know, actually some of the things that Bell is saying here um, you know, these apply to every single temple and Luxor yeah. is special, but not necessarily in the way that, that Lanny thought it was. And, you know, the problem, the reason why there is this confusion is because, you know, we still don't have a publication of Luxor Temple. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. With all the epigraphic survey work, why is there no publication of Luxor Temple? And it's not like that large. Yeah. Well, epigraphic- no. you know, it's not like it's Karnak or something. No. So there are. For there which are- we also have now epigraphic survey yeah. but yeah but there are, there are partial publications so there's um there's the Zudlika Hoema by Brunner I believe I think so uh that is incomplete however which I was Zudlika Hoema Southern Rooms yeah the Southern um, Rooms of Luxor Temple okay. again for for listeners the Southern Rooms of Luxor Temple are special in that they are on a separate axis mm-hmm. than they the are main. The Opet, they are the Ogduad. There's eight columns in that hall. Mm-hmm. You make a right turn. You mm-hmm. make a ninety degree turn. Yeah, yeah. And you go east west uh-huh. instead of north south. And it's it is a very special place. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's uh, one of the things that I was shown when I was working at the epigraphic survey. Yeah. Was um, you know Ray Johnson, Jude Heidel took me back there, and they were like, "Well, here you can see where went once the rest of the temple was closed off to be." the uh the chapel of the uh, tetrarchs in the mm. roman period there was a separate entrance specifically to that uh mm. east-west access mm-hmm. section that was that was built so that people could still access it it's cool it's amazing and for for those listening um you should know my obsession with um with this 90 degree turn and i'll explain it in that most egyptian temples are on an east-west axis mm-hmm. that we have preserved um most of them in upper egypt rather than um any place further north and East-West makes sense. You're on the circuit of the sun. The sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. And so there's your there's your access. Mm-hmm. But n- some temples make a 90-degree turn and take a north-south axis. And those temples are usually associated with kingship, mm-hmm. not temples of millions of years devoted to kingship. Those are, those are east-west. But a temple that might be called Living. a temple of millions of years, but within Karnak, like the temple of Ramses III. Yeah. Yeah, living, I don't know. Luxor is one. Edfu is another. Khonsu. Um, Edfu. Khonsu Temple is another north-south. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Edfu is actually a really interesting case because yeah. in, Edfu is a Ptolemaic yeah. temple. Yeah. But there's but a, it's very old. There's a, there's a pylon of an older temple yes. that you can see that actually is east-west facing. Huh. However, people that have done uh, foundation re- or research into the foundation of that pylon have said that in fact, it probably was not standing here originally that it was reconstructed by the Egyptians uh, to be east-west so they could make room for the north-south axis. So yeah. it probably originally was still on that north-south hmm. axis. And so, yeah, living kingship seems to be north-south. It's like it's like the, the way I try to understand it philosophically is like 
the world turns, you know, like the, when I was growing up, we had this. Yes, um, the, you remember, as the world yes, turns. My mom so, used to listen to it. Yeah, and so this it. is like the larger circuit of things. And then there are some special people, like the king, invested, um, sacralized, given the special power. He can make the 90 He can change turn. it. Yeah. He can change direction. He can move off course, in a sense. And he can create this al alternative human reality, but mm -hmm. only he and we must follow him. And so that's where I see this 90 degree turn. And that's why so much ritual activity makes that turn, that moment of the 90 degree turn, like a big motherfucking moment. It's like the moment when- It's like everything's going like this. And yeah, then someone the goes- Yeah, happens or- yeah. And like Hatshepsut explains it that way in her, in her festival realization that she is marked for power. The bark turns and things, mm -hmm. you know, these turns are important. So I'm obsessed with these 90 yeah. degree turns. Everyone knows this when they take a, a, a temples class with me. Have you done comparative work to look at uh, Mesopotamian temples? Because like no. the Sumerian bent access temple is oh, a yeah. big, big thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you can see architecturally, even in palaces that you have these turns. Mm -hmm. Maybe in people- But they're saying, always oh, explained away as like- To confuse the person That or in, line of sight. Mm -hmm. yes. Like you want it to be, you know, yes. you want to break off like line of sight and it's a show of- like humility of people entering a space. But think of just like a simple parade, like we're on a July 4th parade route and you're walking, walking, walking straight. You make a straight, but if you make a turn, it's a big shift. It's like you're going into an entrance of a different place. You're off the path. Mm -hmm. It's it's a big moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think- It's a defining moment. Cause especially is. a parade, cause normally parades define a, especially in the ancient a world, they, they define a perimeter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so if you des decide to turn on one street, but not another, that's saying who's yeah. included and who's not included. Yeah, and yeah. way stations are a part of this. So yeah. Luxor is like a giant way station, but it's a way station made much more important than mm. any little tiny way station. Mm -hmm. And that's super interesting because it's a place where you go and then you come back, Yeah. right? Um, it's it's not necessarily a place of dwelling. It is a place of, of action and um, manifestation. Mm -hmm. And so that's, Luxor is just, it's such an interesting mm -hmm. place. And a lot of these functions- Luxor temple. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of these functions, you know, get picked up, you know, presumably this is another question that I don't think there's a particular answer to, but how these functions then are echoed, picked up, superseded by the small temple of Medidat Habu Absolutely. in the late period, mm -hmm. yeah. which we, you know, again, for, for listeners, because the, the small temple of Medidat Habu um, was some parts of it were recarved during the Ptolemaic period. Ptolemaic period temples are very nice in that they give us much more text than New Kingdom temples do. So the, that temple makes it very clear that this is the resting place of the Kemotef serpent, mm -hmm. um, and then also the Ogdua, that, and the, the yeah. entrance to the, the, I think it was the, the entrance out of the, the back entrance of the Bark Shrine. This was the entrance to the Dua. And for those confused, the Ogdoad is, it's a Greek word, to apply to the Egyptian word chemenu, um, right? Chemenu, Coptic shmoon. Yeah, and um, and it just means the eight. Mm -hmm. And w when you go into any room, any back hall that has eight pillars, you're automatically creating that turn because you're walking straight east-west, and then the eight pillars are in front of you. Mm -hmm. Four, 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 four. You you you've entered a broad hall, and the broad hall then turns your perspective and and the eight gods are the four pairs of pre-creation so help i remember me. we did have? this you before have, we have keku darkness mm -hmm. amen hiddenness um Heh. Heh. Heh infiniteness what's the fourth what's the fourth um, i always forget a fourth one 
darkness. Uh, noon. Oh, noon, noon the noon, primeval yeah. matter and infinite matter. Mm -hmm. um, and you take those four and that's those are the elements of pre-creation. And from that, you can create anything. Mm -hmm. But you need an actor. You need somebody to come in and say, I'm going to masturbate this shit into existence. I'm going to masturbate myself into mm -hmm. existence. And I know it seems scary for people who haven't heard this. <laughs> but I, do hope, I do hope you've been listening to this podcast and it is not a surprise to you that the Egyptian Big Bang is literally a masturbatory Big yeah. Bang. One of the things yeah. we should clear up, though, yes. which is a constant uh, constant uh, fallacy of yes. Egyptian religious oh, studies. Pun, <laughs> pun very much intended was that um, there is this idea that the act of creation was not only masturbatory, but uh, act of autophilation. Yes. Yeah. 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 And this is based on the misreading of the preposition M, because basically it said that, you know, he ejaculates. M, M, his mouth, yeah. which M is M can mean in, but it does not mean into. It means from in. Yes. So actually, there is no evidence, unfortunately, for autophilation. But he masturbates. He creates the efflux. Yeah. And then he sneezes out Shu, the bright light yes. of emptiness, and then he spits out Tefnut. Yeah. And in that order, right? <laughs> um. So when he, um, masturbates, it's like separate acts. The spitting out is not. I don't remember or the text exactly. Like, I'd have to go back and forms of FLX. I'd have to go back and really double check. Um, I don't remember offhand. Well, that's but less let me fun. just say that a human and I'm getting really abstract here, <laughs> and people can roll their eyes and make fun of me all they want from their cars or their jogs or wherever you listen to this, this strange podcast. But think of a human body prone, laying down. And then what's your 90 degree turn? Your penis. I know, <laughs> I know, but I am doing that. I am saying that the East West is the body of the God. And I am now saying that the 90 degree turn is his action. It is his fisted hand. It is the erect penis. It is the moment when new life comes. I'm saying that it's that literal. I am. It's kind of crazy. What do you think, Jonathan? You're nodding, but like, do you think I'm fucking crazy? Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I think I'm I'm still undecided here because because I because think because looks or temple is all about sex well, sex 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 that's oh, yeah. all they talk about there. I think the other interesting thing and perhaps this touches on the, the thing that I would like to talk about today um, is look at you. I think one in order to make this claim, one would also have to look at the early history of temples and early temples in ancient Egypt are really cool because they're really weird. Yeah. They're not what you'd expect in most cases at all, especially these local, quote unquote, provincial yeah. temples um, that the king, to be frank, didn't give a shit about yeah. to the extent that the first dynasty kings, when they you know, decided that they were all of a sudden the kings of the first dynasty and the second dynasty, plopped this massive fortification mm -hmm. uh, in the island of Elephantine mm -hmm. that nearly blocked entrance to the temple of Satet, which is one mm -hmm. of the few temples that we actually have stratigraphy from yeah. you know, Still its, its foundation like to it, yeah. uh, its, its formal construction. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's that would be an interesting thing to look at because then there's this question of whether, you know, whether it's east-west or north-south, does this actually have to do with the the, the unique ways that the pre-dynastic communities, which in many cases, I'm and, and actually this is one of the things I want to talk about today, have belief systems that have since been erased or forgotten. Mm -hmm. yeah. Are these reflections of an older yeah. kind of communal We're getting meaning like little glimpses of things. That are moved aside or co-opted. Exactly. That work for kingship. And maybe the meanings as, changed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. or in the are, same way that the goddess was super powerful, yes. but then had to be co-opted. Yeah. So you had other elements that had to be yeah. co-opted to bring in this royal cause, strong king, sacralized, masculine, toxic 
patriarchal, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. All right, well, so let's get into on okay. our topic. And so in a different way from other times we've had guests, we usually end up talking about, you know, your dissertation or an article you've written or something you've worked on. But in our emailed conversation, you wanted to focus on something new that you've been thinking about and pondering about. So we're going, I think you wanted to go to off the beaten path, as yeah. you said. We'll get, we'll get a <laughs> little bit off. roaded here. Um, Which is great because it, it means that this is what you're working on now and it's, it's yeah. future publications and things like that. That's really exciting. Yeah, it's certainly what I'm thinking about now, especially in conjunction with my work for the Global Antiquity mm -hmm. Initiative, where right. I'm trying to think broadly beyond Egypt um, and towards a, a larger audience and, and towards kind of more, I guess, long durée Mm -hmm. trends mm -hmm. and and kind of towards universalism as well which is a, a bad word to some mm -hmm. extent but is it exactly yeah um it's been considered a bad word for a long time especially in egyptological circles yeah, yeah. um but i would like to see a bit more of it these i agree days. i agree um we've talked about this before yeah. on the podcast but yeah a hundred percent agree because if you're not universalist then you are fetishizing and separating and you are making some people not part of the general human experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that all antiquity, all ancient peoples with their separate particularized ways of expressing leadership, kingship, gender identity, all of these different things are, are still part of the, the universal human experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, not that we have to same it out, but that we can compare. Yeah. We should compare, especially now more than ever. Yeah. Well, let me also make it very clear yeah. that because this is something that I'm just starting to think yeah. about now, I've chosen this as, I th again, I think this is a really fun thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a really interesting to thing to talk about, but I do not claim to be an expert yeah. in what I'm talking about. Um, not so, yet. Not, not yet, at least. <laughs> well, I mean, these are stuff, we, you know, a lot of these. So essentially, we want to look at, you know, the imaginary, the, uh, the concept of Egypt. What is Egypt? Concepts of globalization. Yeah. Um, you know, why does Egypt sometimes get called a state? Why does it sometimes get called an empire? Um, how do these labels get attached? How would have Egyptians and Egypt, ancient Egypt thought, how would they have thought about these things and mm -hmm. conceptualized themselves? Yeah. yeah. And absolutely, I will be also 100% upfront. And again, I'm, I'm a big believer in doing this, mm -hmm. that my interest in this very much stems from the feeling that I think a lot of us have of living through this current moment in our globalist society and feeling like we're living through a period of collapse mm -hmm. yeah. and what that collapse means what what we are collapsing from mm -hmm. what the previous vision of globalism that we've had was and whether there is also a new vision of globalism that perhaps can overcome some of the the pitfalls of the past yeah. and um create new unity and and new meaning mm -hmm. for for multiple communities yeah um and so, yeah, essentially the, the, the rough temporary, or um, not temporary, uh, the rough uh, preliminary thesis of, of, of my idea here is that I think the ways in which we imagine the world to look and we imagine the people within that world to look have more effect mm -hmm. on our reality than we've previously given. Yeah, oh, 100%. Our mm -hmm. like if you on our lived real... Our thinking, there's collapse. Right. Like the news is telling us everything's so expensive, the every, you know, inflation, inflation, inflation. Then you're going to go, then you internalize that mm -hmm. and you say everything sucks, even if it's like not that bad. And or, you know, 
Whereas equally, or, yeah. if you are, you know, a you know a wealthy British landowner in the 17 or 1800s, you can think of your global imperialist exploitative projects as a way of, in fact, bringing civilization Positive, and as kind yeah. of these these this this way of having a natural growth. Jonathan, the, they were just creating jobs, and I just <laughs> wish you would not criticize them. You know, jobs mm-hmm. creation is hard and the money will trickle down and I need you to stop. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, God gave them that wealth for a reason and not to the little <laughs> serfs on their land. Mm-hmm. So please. Let alone the Irish. <laughs> <laughs> My people. Um, yeah. But are you also saying mm-hmm. that the way that we see ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, then affects how the we do world our scholarship? That we live in? Absolutely. Also certainly our affects scholarship. our scholarship. That we know. Right. And how we write our scholarship. But does it affect our way of being in the world in a much bigger way? I think it's a symptom of the effect. But I would not be so bold as to say that academia is powerful enough. Maybe maybe some. But the movie Gladiator is. The movie Gladiator is um, perhaps some philosophical movements are. But again, Egyptology is usually not generated. Stoicism amongst all of the tech tech bros and, and finance bros. Yeah, stoicism. Um, it's made a super comeback. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing to say, be content in the world that you're in. Be content with what you're given when you're a white tech bro who's been given a whole shit ton. Yeah, when you're really privileged and doing great. Yeah. yeah. Well, this sounds is, this, awesome. This is Embrace another... your fate. Yeah. yeah. Okay, dude. You'll yeah. be rich. Yeah. Well, I think tied to the, what we're talking about here with the, the rebirth of such or the, the reinvigoration of such philosophical movements is also tied to somewhat their commodification and also their unprecedented availability mm. to an, an unprecedented amount of people in the form of, you know, just the... the Information. Yes. Yeah, freely available. The, the, yeah. uh, the Google, Wikipedia. Exactly, exactly. Free ebooks. Yeah. yeah. If you want to get into something, you can easily self-educate. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So should we begin maybe more broadly? And I had a question here when mm-hmm. I was thinking about questions of agreeing on definitions for state empire (laughs) which i we've had this argument i feel like we always went with grad students and stuff like Mm -hmm. was the egyptian they have an empire what's a state what's a territorial state a hegemony Mm -hmm. like what was it really and your response was it doesn't matter no so i'm interested to hear why so i i wouldn't say that my response was it doesn't matter but i think I think we should certainly have this conversation, at least for to give listeners some kind of background. Um, but then, and just to kind of set the stage in you terms of what the Egyptological <laughs> um, kind of consensus or status quo is. Yes. But I think for reasons that will hopefully become apparent, I'm going to choose not to agree on a set of definitions. Fair. I also, and I, you know, Helen Stradwick, Stradwick and I, who's a... Um, lead curator at the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge, we just got in this big thing. I'm like, Helen, stop trying to um, get all the definitions right all for these what definitions, reuse is yeah. and what this is. The nuance is the thing. And I would rather keep it nuanced and, and then we can work with it better. So, you know, because then you back yourself into a corner. You, you lay you out do. a definition and then it ends up not fitting. You're like, well, fuck, like, and also what where, do I do now? <laughs> and also, where does this definition come from? Yes. It comes from our modern nation's own imagination. Yes. And as we are currently in a position where I think if we are to 
continue the lifestyles that we have Mm -hmm. um, and also make sure that we are living an equitable and inclusive life whatever that that (laughs) these need to change yeah and to have the flexibility to then change them rather than to say well you know well look at look at the egyptian uh, or look at like the Persian or Roman empires mm-hmm. because they this is how statehood worked for them. This is clearly how statehood still works. But no, these are these are self-creating and self-reinforcing. Yeah. Arguments. So what you're saying is that the state in and of itself could be a total fake out. It might not be real. It might not exist. And yet, if people believe it and need it to be real and hold on to it that in it their is. anxiety mm-hmm. of worrying about sea peoples invading or Mexican drug dealers crossing the border or whatever it is, then your state is the thing that you hold to to create your own identity and you're creating fiction from fiction but that fiction reifies itself onto the poor people from guatemala just trying to get out of a, mm-hmm. a, a you know a very difficult situation and claim asylum but can't because this is our nation state it reminds me very yeah. much like money yeah like yeah. we all agree money it's has this value but it's a piece of paper that yes. is not backed by gold anymore yeah and but we all agree or yeah. like the stock market or something like yeah. like yeah. value capital yeah. that we all buy into this system and agree it's worth this amount and these things mean things and it's just a piece of paper yeah. yeah but how often the egyptians when they're talking about this state we'll avoid the word nation state yeah. that's its own complication mm-hmm. right more of a 20th century 8 19th century thing but like wh- when we look at the egyptians they would say the two lands they would say what well, like what are some of the words assigned to kingship so that it will help us to assign the state because who's creating who's at the head of creating the fiction but king, the king and his entourage. Mm-hmm. That's the, those are the people that are really creating that feedback loop. How do they define the state just through titles? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, through titles, occasionally through boundary stealing, but yeah. very, at least in our, in our the, what we have preserved for us, this is not a usual kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, certainly we have internal boundary stela or boundary stela that are set up to mark specific sacred areas, mm-hmm. um, especially, for example, at Abydos. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have boundary stela in the south, um, set up, for example, by Sun III mm-hmm. um, that, you know, specifically say that no one's allowed to travel here, you know, beyond the permission, without the permission of the king or without the business or not doing yeah. business in whatever way, shape or form they're supposed to do business. Um, but even the... Even the term for the king, Nisut Biti, mm-hmm. he of the sedge and of the bee, yeah. is a fictional creation of a state yeah. or a bi-state. Geograph- geography. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which is, again, geographically constructed as opposed to historically constructed, probably. Yeah. Um, certainly, there probably was some historical accuracy to this claim yeah. at some point. Um, but, but it's like, how much does one dude actually know what's going on or controlling a village in the Western Delta. Yeah. Or, and for example, like when early Egyptologists were looking at state formation in Egypt, they said, oh, well, clearly there was a Southern kingdom mm-hmm. that was governed by Seth or, you know, Sethian people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A Northern kingdom that was governed by Horus and Horus, the North must have conquered the South. Yes. And we, and it's this some, nice, cute 1898, little narrative. we were yeah. very much like, oh, that's <laughs> probably not the case at all. But then the pottery, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. And I'm South. obsessed with just the word Nesut, yeah. king. He it, and it's it gives the South priority, mm-hmm. which is crazy. I mean, yeah, they're the ones that invented it. They're the ones yeah. that keep reinventing mm-hmm. it. But by the time you get to the Ramesid period, this is not yeah. a Nesu. Mm-hmm. But that's the word they're going to use. It's as apocryphal and ridiculous for a Ramesid king to call himself Nesu as anything so you could possibly imagine. Well, I wonder if by that p- 
point, it's like you're not even thinking about the meaning of it anymore. Yeah. It loses that. You know what's sense. really funny in that I think it also has something to do with the way that they oriented their world because up is naturally just hierarchically superior to down. Yeah. And because they oriented their world from the w the direction that the Nile flows, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, the elevation. south, the knee, the knee suit was always in some degree Better. hierarchically superior to the BT. Not consistently, but if you had to choose which one you were calling the king or which term you'd use for the king, you'd choose the southern direction. And then all you'd also choose the right-hand side. Mm -hmm. So you'd but choose you west over east. could see it temporarily east. too. Because kingship arises in the South, that's where it's invented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's always Nesut Biti. The suit always comes first. I agree with you. You could see it as a hierarchical, which is top down, which is South versus North. But then it, it works to see it as that, that creation first. Okay, so this is one of my questions. So we might as well so get into this in do, a second. Do you mind if I jump into one yes. thing? Because I, I want to address something before yeah, we yeah. get yeah. too far off topic um, about kind of how we are. And actually, this, this conversation is a nice tangent mm. to that because, you know, we would never understand our world these days as the two lands or, you know, upper Egypt versus lower Egypt. Um, to some extent, you know, we still do have this weird north-south yeah. hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, but we south. look at that worldview now as like, oh, well, this is very much attached to a specific place and time. Right. So now what I'm advocating for is to, you know, change our globalist perspective. Yeah. But what I'm not saying is that this is a new, more objective globalist mm -hmm. perspective. That right. This is not based on our own conceptions and imaginations. They certainly are. It's just hopefully based on a more ethical imagination and a more, po not a positivist, but a kind of more inclusive and equitable imagination. But it also, but to do that, it means that you have to look at every Egyptian term, sweep away the positivism, mm -hmm. bring out your hypercritical mind to the annoyance of all yeah. and say, even Nesut is so fucking loaded. We have to break it down into all of its different parts that we can actually say where this comes from so that even though we'll, talk about, we'll, we'll take that term because we have to as Egyptologists mm -hmm. or as specialists of Egyptian history and and use it and and sometimes just say the Nesut says and, and not like make a big okay, deal of yeah. it. But you have to understand the weight and the profundity and the place that it comes from mm -hmm. so that you can critique it better. Yeah. And and then we have to do that with all the words and all the things that are, like when I use the word slavish, you're like, oh, that's a, that's mm -hmm. not a great word. And and I'm like, oh, yeah, OK, but I meant it. But but still. Yeah. Right. So everything. Go back that, to the like beginning. Right. And, and it may be perceived as a hyper wokeness. It's true. But if you don't if you don't stab at things and mm -hmm. deflate them, you'll not be able to sweep things away in order to rebuild something that's that's got a mm -hmm. little more of a of a clear scene lens, not critique for its own sake but something that can seal, if that's even possible, mm -hmm. to see something without power acting upon us. Because every history we write is us acting from places of our own power, our mm -hmm. own privilege, our own whatever, and you'll never get rid of it, yeah. obviously. Mm -hmm. yeah. But at least if we can constantly be asking, well, what about me? What about this? What about the place I come from? What about then? it can be a little bit clearer. Mm -hmm. This is also, I think, what makes us human in a way. Yeah. Like this is this is why we're able to live in the ways that we live um, and why what in, in some degrees makes us different from from the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. Again, it's it's not a hard and fast kind of this is not like a ratio. Yeah. Irratio kind of distinction, um, but certainly this ability to imagine our communities 
in these kind of unreal ways mm -hmm. where... Yeah, but only 15% of us are doing this, Jonathan. Most people are part of the hyperhuman organism that's just going to run off the fucking cliff. Yeah, but they still have an idea of like... Like a global... Even if, you know, they might not feel... And I think that speaks to something. Yeah. That something's going on that people are becoming insular and pushing away the other and looking, you know, right. yeah. yeah. Or even, you know, even if you live in California but are unable to identify California on a map, you still identify as California mm -hmm. and you still identify probably as American. Um, that might be all, like, or you might identify as a community that's under attack or under mm -hmm. siege in America. Um, but you're still kind of understanding your place in the world in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. We took a quick break and we're back. Yeah, now we're going to get into some more, uh, more specific case studies. And we're going to start chronologically yeah. as Egyptian history does. But so I guess quickly, what's the stereotypical narrative we encounter in books, his, book, history books about ancient Egypt of, you know, the state unification or um, you know, when does Egypt become a state? How mm -hmm. do we see this playing out? And then how can we messy it up? Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. It's a, it's a great question. It also touches upon the question that we, that we hit or right before the Or why do we care, the, the actually? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so Egypt is often said to, the, the, state, the, the process of state formation that happened in the pre-dynastic and probably still during the early dynastic mm -hmm. period is said to have resulted in the first territorial state in human existence. I've seen territorial state, I've seen regional state. Yeah. It's fine. What, what are some other terms? I don't know. But, but what's... Yeah. What? It, it, it means it's not a city state. Yeah. Okay. It's not a hyper-local state competing with other city-states nearby. Think it's of a, a mes more Mesopotamian model. Yes. Or a Greek model. A Greek model or of city Latin, state. Yeah. Or Italian peninsula model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe even a Chinese model. Don't know as much, but it's a broader expanse of a region that you can't, um, it, it's more than just like your your center, your and capital, the hinterland of your farming, yeah. and then that's it. Yeah. It's so, so if yes. we call then the first unification of those Mesopotamian city states under Sargon of Akkad, mm -hmm. yeah. we call that the An first empire. empire. We yeah. really do. How yes. come we do not call the Egyptian state of the first and second dynasties an empire? Preach it, brother. I love it. Yes. And I'm reading the new. Yes. Um, the new history, uh, like weavers, kings, and something else um, about the new a new history of the Near East, and she's talking about this exact thing, like why is it an empire? Mm -hmm. And it's I think it comes down to like cultural affinities. I think it's because oh, so I'm going to have a hot. Yeah, I'm going to go teleological and say that it Just, results in the empire, and thus they get to have the first empire. But what do you what do you say? I think so. I I agree with that because it's kind of in the, the case of Sargon is kind of setting the stage for the for Assyrians, these, these Assyrians, yes. the Babylonians, mm -hmm. and the Persians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, whereas the Egyptian first dynasty sets the stage for the Egyptian 26th dynasty. Yeah, it's yeah, the same. It, does. it doesn't um, change. And so, but then there's the question of, and I think the other important part here is that the empire of Sargon collapses. Mm -hmm. The Egyptian state certainly has its hiccups. But that was a that was successfully Im Im implanted or mm -hmm. imprinted in the minds of the elites of ancient Egypt, in which 
once it was there, that they was could the imagine basis. it again. Yeah. And the boundaries are remarkably stable yeah. in mm-hmm. Egypt versus Akata's Asia. It's like it, it growing and, and it gets yeah. bigger and it collapses yeah. and it gets even bigger. We're going to Ebla. Yeah. Oh no, we're not going yeah. to Ebla. We're going yeah. to Mari. Oh no, we're no, not yeah. going to Mari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but also in pre Dynasty Zero, you have Neken. Hierakompolis, uh, Edfu, Abydos, that are warring with each other mm-hmm. until it seems that one wins out. Super and not seats. to mention, but yeah, it's a very city-state-like system. It is a very until city-state. Until the South kind of coalesces but under one. we don't one. call them city-states. Mm-hmm. They don't, I think archaeologically too, they don't look like yes. city-states. Well, no, but that, well, the they're not culturally it... distinct in any yeah. way. Yeah. They all have the same pottery. Well, like North and South have different stuff, but yeah. like in but the then south. they got a 2D, they all yeah. have the same pottery. Yeah, so they have a regional economic <sighs> state. Well, so, isn't that the argument, the whole, oh, is it warfare or is it like cultural domination? So this is another kind of argument, is yeah. that, that, and this is something that I think that, that's been in several things that we've both read recently, uh, that um, economic globalism yeah. precedes mm-hmm. territorial or precedes state globalism. Yeah. Yes. Economic precedes political. Yeah. Yes. However, I think this is a very, very capitalist argument. Fair. Because essentially it's what it's saying is that before a state came in and controlled a region in a uh, hegemonic way, is that there were communities of people that interacted with other communities of people, exchanged goods, exchanged ideas in a way that you could not draw a border around. Mm-hmm. And the idea that this is teleological to the formation of the state with a capital S, I think is missing the fact that this is actually how just human communities exist yeah. without state imposition or without kind of a authoritarian figure at the top. To, and of course, there's conflict between the two well, or b- between polities, but yeah. that everything, here's the thing that we always talk about entanglements, right. but we always talk about entanglements in terms of Egypt and Nubia and mm-hmm. that, oh, you can't really separate them, um, but we're going to still separate, separate them, them and teach about Egypt and then teach about Nubia. Mm-hmm. And Egypt is the monolith and Nubia is its own monolith. Mm-hmm. And we might say, and they butt Nubia in this borderland. Yeah. 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 When I think, in fact, the, the, baseline of the existence of human communities is to be in decent relationships with your neighbors, that the exchange of ideas and goods with your neighbors creates communities, mm-hmm. creates whether we want to say about states or mm-hmm. it creates meaning. And it's it's a process of mutual stimulation mm-hmm. or mutual stimulation. Uh, that then leads to a lot of the things that we identify with the state. Yeah. That leads to things like, for example, it could lead to writing, it could lead to artistic expression, mm-hmm. it Circles could lead goods, to a share, shared visu- visual uh, language, a yeah. shared um, written language, um, a shared pantheon, a shared mm-hmm. system of beliefs. Which, Which is makes all elite-driven. Mm-hmm. It's Which, all elite-driven. But it makes sense, too, if we're going way back, like Gobekli Tepe is before people are settled before there's like large states. Yeah, you could say Napta Playa. Yeah, Napta Playa, but like mm-hmm. people are coming together mm-hmm. to create sacred spaces yeah. for, you know, various reasons. And you don't need an authoritarian yeah. governing you in some way. And these these comings together seem to be very, very peaceful. Mm-hmm. Of course, we don't know the and whole picture probably, here. And they're probably, when they're coming together like this, they're probably, you know, setting up marriages, yeah. changing goods. Um, getting the latest news and gossip from the other people. 
um, hearing about exchanging, you know, maybe new technologies yeah. and things. And, and without these exchanges, these pre-existing exchanges, then something like Gobekli Tepe or, you know, Nautiplier would not exist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess. What, what do you say? Well, so, so no, I, I do agree with that. But I think that it's wrong to see these initial level of exchange or these initial stimulations that occur from exchange at, occur from exchange as the kind of beginnings of civilization, the beginnings of civilization or the beginnings of a process. Yeah. I think that they are in themselves the outputs, process. Outputs, outputs. But can, yeah. I, can I add a little more patriarchal yes. cynicism in this? No, no, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah, we're saying, this is, we're saying this is pre, we're saying this is pre that. But even with that, we, we throw in these, because even before uh, hardcore patriarchal civilization with a big C, we, we still I also have hate the these... word civilization. Yeah, it's a bad. It's I a hate it. Like word. everyone says it, I'm like <clears throat> cringe. It's a, yeah. So the culture. It's a hugely yeah. problematic word. But like we talk about entanglements, we talk about connections, we talk about discourse and networks. But who? Most people mm -hmm. are stuck on their land, not able to move, trying to survive in their way, and, and don't have that kind of mobility. And a precious few do. And even before you have the state, however we define that fiction mm -hmm. <laughs> or, mm -hmm. or fictionalized reality, um, you, you have elites who are competing with one another and standing on the backs of others in their society to gain a hoarded political and hoarded economic um, amassed wealth and thereby create this civilization with a big C but that's like... <laughs> much more insidious than we can it not we ever say be both like you can have the higher ups doing their higher up thing hoarding wealth and all these things but then on a more local level also have local community communities that even those that yes. have not that do not have access to prestige goods that do not have access to riverine travel they're still affected by it they're, for sure. they're still affected but their entanglements can be essentially at the level of village to village yes. it's like you're entangled with the village that's yeah. just across the river for you and for like, that community, the act of being across the river from them might be in some ways as significant yeah. as, you know, the entanglement between Aswan and Nubia mm -hmm. when the first dynasty comes in. It's all like, like fractions. I, yeah. I agree yeah. with that. I guess my point is, is that as we move towards the state, the people at the top need to co-opt and take from the people at the bottom to get their mass political power and economic hoarded wealth. Can I ask you what besides economic hoarded wealth do they take and what do they turn that economic hoarded wealth into that allows them this then ability? Ideology. Oh yeah. Yeah, ideology, yeah. artistic yeah. goods. Also the, the ability to transport these artistic goods mm -hmm. in a way yeah. that's organized, that takes advantage of probably pre-existing networks of exchange. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but it also gives back to those people then, because then maybe they get access to these fast ways of transport. I they might it, get some stuff that's coming in at the same time that before they were maybe more isolated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it can or it can't. Yeah. We were just talking about this in the art class and doing the art cycle this year, which is super fun. And, and I'm like, I need you to think of art not as a thing, but as a verb. I want you to think of it as a, as a functional act 
it works upon the mind. Especially Egyptian art. Yes, yeah. any art, really. Mm -hmm. But what well, is yeah, art? It's political. Like, what is it's, art? Yeah. If it's a fugly figurine, it's not acting upon the mind and heart such that you submit yourself to it. But it, if, it, if it is gorgeous and somehow seems a miracle to you, or how could anyone craft it, or I must stand and gaze upon it, it will act upon your heart and mind in a way such that you subsume your power or that the it. statue is a god mm -hmm. could be in any and sort of way it can inhabit it and and so that art can be the normal palette it can be a fucking pyramid mm -hmm. it can be a statue of men jacking off it can be all kinds of things but if it acts upon you then you know that you are less than and the person who made that is more than and how did they get the resources to make those things but by you giving up some of those things and feeling it was the right and proper thing to do. Mm. So that I just want to throw in a little Marxist cynicism. No, that's exactly where I ho was okay. hoping that you were going you because this idea, say, we know. <laughs> this idea of giving up, because think yeah. of, mm. think of now all that we've talked about in the context of now the territorial state of the first dynasty. Yeah. What that does not survive to us in the archeological record that does not survive in the memory of communities, even of the Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, what was the price Resistance. that had to be paid yeah. for this territorial state? Yeah. And this territorial state that we know was successful because it was a su successful weapon of the mind. Yeah. That once it was wielded, yeah. that it was so effective that it was imprinted in the mind of the elite. you can't even see it. Yeah, you can't, you can't see even see it. it. It's the water in which you swim. And mm -hmm. that's what I talk about in The Good Kings. And mm -hmm. okay, fine. But like, and there's so many prices. You're going to ask what price there is. I mean, start listing some. There are so many that yeah. people give up. But Taxes. they're all unseen. Yeah. Or yeah. so many of them are unseen. Or sacralized. So your taxes go to the temple. So they're washed. That they're or just even like your movement. They're subsumed into the system. Yeah, yeah. your movement, you know, all... Your, your identity, sexual your sexual freedom, identity. your identity, yeah. your land now that's owned by someone mm -hmm. yeah. and you can only farm this plot of land and not that part of land, yeah. right? And I think that speaks to the success of a specific scope of globalism. Yeah, yeah. And so can, and one thing, and then I, I'll let you mm -hmm. go back to questions and, and things, but like this idea of you saying, but the uh, normal people, the sad surf people, they benefit the peasant too. Peasant farmer. And I, or they learn too, or they're a part of it too. In a sense, I agree, but it takes so much longer to build that, that ability to empower those people that I think if you have to look at such a long durée mm -hmm. to see people being able to claim that knowledge, that restricted knowledge, and to work it back against their overlords, that it takes thousands of years to see that particular cycle you it's easier to see the state formation you're like oh here's the pottery all being the same yeah. and now here's the politics all being united and here's the lord of the two lands and the armor pal boom 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 yeah. but to see how the the serf or whoever this is who was just like a hunter-gatherer dude and then he became an agriculturalist and then he's like tied to the land and the and the mm -hmm. lord of that land to see him benefit from the connections really and work upon his overlord again takes 2000 3000 4000 maybe even 5000 years to where we sit now and now we're finally potentially then, being anti-patriarchal and working against it well, that's a long but then I, once the state's <laughs> in place you like to be someone who's not involved in said state you can't you, you can't you can. right you're just There's like no some fringe out. person we can't become hunter gatherers again yeah. there's too many of us we must what, act you, within like, tight networks. We mm -hmm. wouldn't survive. Yeah. You're going to go eat bugs? There aren't, yeah. there aren't any left, apparently. So we can't, you know. Well, Kara, I think <laughs> I entirely agree with that. But I'd say that we it's impossible for us to say as archaeologists, as historians, as philologists, though philology from this period is, you know, very limited. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
it's impossible for us to say whether this benefited or was uh, kind of. We assume there's a benefit, like oh, people give up some personal freedoms to get X, Y, and Z, like safety and. No, this could be overall detrimental to these local communities. We don't know. The fact that I think it speaks to the success of a certain type of globalism is that we cannot tell. But the way the. the, sorry, just, let me just the, yeah. the, any local forms of resistance yeah. that would have been perceptible to us or would have been perceptible to people at the time have been see. lost. Yeah, I agree. is it in a way taking like a modern example like sweatshops and like fast fashion mm-hmm. and that like there's a, all these controversies coming up with like Shein right now yeah. and how they pay like the workers nothing yeah, and it's that. all this stuff and people are like oh stop shopping that way but then other people are like well that's the only clothes I can afford and. You know, I can't afford like nice handmade clothes in the United States, so this is like yeah. the only option I have. And there's always going to be sweatshops and people working for low pay, producing cheap clothes. And the-, the the major difference between that and I think the 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 well, actually, I'm not sure if this is a major difference, but I think the what. So what I was going to say is mm-hmm. a major difference is the distance that's involved yes. and the visibility. Yes, out of sight, but, out of mind. But even for you know, we're talking about a degree of scale, not mm-hmm. of necessarily of kind, for a pre-dynastic serf, say, that's living in Nakata, Mm -hmm. and that all of a sudden is, you know, perhaps getting their luxury goods from Hierakompolis, Mm -hmm. that could have similarly felt a world away. Yeah, because you, like, probably never leave your village. you buy luxury goods for this simple person? Well, metal or some jewelry. (laughs) (laughs) Some beads. Some beads. Yeah. 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 A pallet. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, mean, if you don't leave your village... They're not going to get a pallet. You don't Pallets, leave your... I think, are always restricted, yeah. too. Okay, some beads yeah. are people piece, can travel piece of metal. to Wadi Hamamat. Yeah. Yeah. That's a long way. Yeah, well, and the Wadi and being a... Yeah. This, again, speaks to the success of these early rulers because they... And you see this so clearly, they I think, on pottery. Miracles. They created miracles. They created miracles where they they had this community, these communities that were making these pots with these religious symbols on them, and they said, those are beautiful. Those are ours now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, your pots are now... They can have... You know, some you black tops the, like, and like some bleh. like red yeah. bottoms, and we'll take all this imagery. You can still carve it into, or we can carve it. We don't know who is carving it into the rocks of desert paths, mm-hmm. um, but otherwise, they belong on our monuments. They belong on our divine mm-hmm. palettes and our tombs. And who's who is us? Yeah, and are you know in this situation? And even the, you're asking, what's the price? You look at the first dynasty. I was going to say all these sacrifices. All the sacrifices, yeah. hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. Like I think Jer is the highest mm-hmm. number with Couple. almost 700. Yeah. And those are elite people, well-fed, well-bred, if we want to use that difficult term. Um, mm-hmm. It is, right? Well-bred, AKA means, meaning yeah. incest. <laughs> yeah, always. It's, so, it's, it's the opposite of it what you think. It's always <laughs> the opposite of what you think. Uh, but, but those people, willingly or unwillingly, I mean, we don't know. No. If they step forward and they say, take me, I want to serve you as hairdresser in the next life. If you forever. truly believe there's a next life. Yeah. Sounds good. But there's <laughs> got to be some people that are like, no, eh, I'm kind of scared. Or, yeah. Eh. Who yeah. knows? Let me say that also when I refer to the price that has to be paid, I'm explicitly kind of piggybacking off of an Osman mm. phraseology, yeah. which is because uh, he always talks about the price of monotheism. And, and who's, who's Osman? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say who's Osman. Yeah, Jan Osman, Osman. famous, famous Egyptological, Egyptological scholar who's also especially famous for being 
some, to at least to some extent, a universalist. Yeah. For talking about larger trends in yeah. European intellectual history, mm -hmm. for talking about larger intellectual trends in global yes. history. And if he's been criticized, he's been criticized as focusing on the top 2% as an elite-driven universalist cultural system, which is probably the chief argument against universalism as a thing, that if you don't take a non-hierarchical approach, you'll never be able to see what really is. Has that actually been the criticism of him? I don't think that's been the actual criticism What do you think him? is the criticism of him? That's the, my criticism of that's him. That's your criticism of him, but that's not what the field's criticism What's of him. What's the field's criticism? The field's criticism of him is... Tell me. I just find him far between. hard to understand. Uh, I think there's a idea that perhaps... Well, it's the, the most kind of, I think... The biggest fallacy or the biggest fallacial criticism uh, of him is that he is anti-Semitic, yes, which yeah. I don't agree with. I don't agree with that. Um, because he talks about Moses the Egyptian and, and takes the monotheism away from Hebrews and gives it to the Egyptians. I mean, they did it first. But, but anyway, go but, on. But I think a lot of the criticism comes <laughs> from the, the German Christian right um. uh, that basically says that he's kind of discrediting or undermining monotheism and wow. kind of... Um, you know, going against uh, divine authority in some kind of way. Oh. Extraordinary. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, but anyway, so, but this this idea of the price that has to be paid for monotheism, this is him talking about exactly what we were saying, what, what you have to give up when you subsume yourself to a certain ideology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In this case, the ideology of monotheism, where he says basically, by claiming your status as an individual who is able to take God within themselves yeah. and therefore you know, again, set set the stage for perhaps something that we're going to be talking about later is that have your own kind of personal sovereign. You don't need sovereign, a church or something. Exactly, then, to, right? to um, circumvent the monarch yeah. in a way in the traditional Egyptian model where the monarch is the intermediary, is the only intermediary yeah. between society and the gods, which is, you know, we can see is, at least in specific periods, is historically untrue when you have the divine animals yeah. especially. Uh, but he's saying that when you do this, uh, you give up a lot of your kind of communal existence mm. and that there is a price and that it comes with um, consequences. Which book? This is a lot of books. Yeah. Um, this is uh, Moses the Egyptian. Mm -hmm. This is, um, I think, his most recent publication, which is Oxyalzite. Uh, I think um. it's not translated into English. This is the problem also that a lot of his Egyptological works have been translated into English, yeah. but not a lot of his kind of larger philosophical, grand perspective yeah. philosophical works. Um, I think this is also in the Maat books, which is translated. Maat has in, not been translated. Translated in French, but not English. Yeah. Oh, well. Super that's, annoying. That's better than German. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I've read the Ma'at in German, but not for years. Anyway. So, getting back to the foundations of the Egyptian state, mm -hmm. we were talking about territoriality versus regional versus other, you know, empire, while we don't reference it as an empire. And this is why I don't like these terms, yes. because it depends on your perspective. Yeah. It depends on whose community you're situating mm -hmm. as the center and whose perspective you're adopting. Yeah. And if you adopt, again, as Kara, you were saying, if you adopt the perspective of one of these serfs, you don't, we, we don't have their perspective no. in this community. Well, and then like, this, would, is this how they, did they even perceive of it as like a unification of anything? Were yeah. they even told? Yeah. yeah. Or like, so all of a sudden, like, you know, the king sails around, like, visits people eventually. But like, yeah, how do you know, like, it's not like a, oh, boom, now you're a part of this. Yeah. There's a king now and there's a monarch and... You pay taxes. And... I mean, one key difference between 
empire and regional state that I see in the scholarship is this idea of empire uniting different cultural streams mm -hmm. into something that's imperially connected. Whereas Egypt was already, sorry, culturally connected. Whereas mm -hmm. Egypt was already culturally connected. Yes. And, and the unification of North and South is never going to be seen as imperial. Yes. Whereas the unification of Southern Mesopotamia and Akkad was so different, different languages even. Yeah. yeah. Different ethnoi. I think it's it's usually, yes. it's called, uh, like, it's usually said with uh, ethnic identities. Yes. It, yeah. it, empires unite different ethnic yeah. identities. And one Egypt, speaks Sumerian, one is writing Akkadian, and thus you North and to... South as same seas. But think about how much different languages there would have been in Lower Egypt, oh in gosh. the Delta, yeah. in the yeah. pre dynastic period compared yeah. to Southern Egypt. Yeah. So let's. The and then that's why Nubia is set aside as something. Then that's an empire. Yes, maybe. But how do you define it's a different empire? Ethnic. Let's define wow. empire. Well, this quickly. Well, should we maybe get into the new kingdom, which yeah. might help us define empire, especially in our comparison versus uh, Egyptian expansion in the north versus Egyptian expansion in the south? Well, okay. Can so, do. but we also get empire in the early dynastic, right? Narmer is sometimes said to have an empire into the southern Levant. Yes. You can make that claim or outposts are there and the degree of control, which I think comes into empire, definitions of empire. You know, if you just have a couple outposts and you're exploiting the area for whatever mining resources. The simplest understanding of empire that I see is that you have your control in your homeland. You go outside of your homeland. But where's that border? Yes. But you impose <laughs> that control in the homeland. That's the simplest explanation. Yeah. But if you look at empires in practice, Iron Age empires in practice, it's you're uniting within a common culture. You're trying to impose a common culture, but you're doing so with many different religions, many different languages, yeah. many different ethnic groups, as you say, and that you're you're allowing everyone to be different within the whole. So you want to practice uh, Christianity in the Roman Empire at a certain point. Okay, yay you. Yay, you but you the issue ahead. why it became, why Judaism or Christianity became an issue is because they also wouldn't worship the emperor. Yes, yes. but if you worship the emperor and you have your religion, then fine. yes, yeah. we're fine with these things and they can coexist. You want to have your different language and you do too, that's fine, but here's our language that we all communicate in for But taxes. also the elites then are, I think, part of a more homogenous yes. group yeah. yes. amongst and, the empire. And you see this in Egypt as well, in the Middle Kingdom, the story of mm -hmm. Sinaue, where it says, where Sinaue is all out of sorts, and yep. he says, like, I am, I forget exactly the terminology, or the phraseology, but he's like, basically, it admits to the existence of dialects yep. in the Delta and Aswan yeah. that these they people would talk. not have been able to understand yeah. each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so does this, why does this not constitute multiple ethnoi, yeah. I think also is a matter of perspective. Well, I'm like, yeah, what's an ethnoid? But the Egyptians <laughs> don't want it to, or the, the state, the Egyptian state does not want it to be different. Yeah. And we drink that Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm, we so do. So if the Egyptian state says, I am the Lord of the two lands, I bind it together, we are one, we are the same, then we all say, okay, this is not an imperial formation. Mm. This is a hegemonic whole. Yeah. And we will, we will uh, work with that. Whereas mm -hmm. with all the moving pieces and the different competitions of West Asia in particular, we we don't allow it to. There's no one strong enough, and there's no geography that allows it that will will Creates create that. that unification. Yeah. I was I was actually just going to say I think one thing that we've been missing is the geographic yeah. component. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think one of the things that has allowed globalism in the way that we've been talking about it so far, again setting aside our normal definitions of state and empire, 
what has allowed this vision of or this version of globalism to be successful is the geography that yeah. everyone mm -hmm. shares a common geography, as opposed to uh, even Mesopotamia, where it rains some places and it doesn't rain another mm -hmm. place. Or there's the, one Nile yeah. and there's two rivers and Tigris, they flow and you, differently. Yes, yeah. and so they they separate and you have this mm -hmm. different. You know, you have to cross like across the Tigris to yeah. Euphrates to connect certain city states. Yeah. Whereas in Egypt, you just go up and down. No. I'm not saying it's always easy mm -hmm. to take your river boat on the Nile. Oh, we've but. we've all been in that boat that we're trying to get across the river, <laughs> and there's no motor, yeah. and there's no you're wind, like, and you're just sitting there. <laughs> yeah, sure. like, but usually, when we're on that felucca, we're there with with some intent to to be relaxed, but yeah. not always. Yeah. Yeah. Always. yeah, yeah. I think I think geography plays a huge. I mean, and that's that's also taught within Egypt, you know, Egyptology that it's the the river unites, you yes. know, north and south because it's a very long but actually they, they a lot of But they teach it in the way that the Egyptians taught yes. it and preached it. And I mean preached mm -hmm. for real. They don't teach it as a critical viewpoint. They just say, "Ah, there is the red land and black land. There is the Nile and there is the The north and south." The, exactly. And these the are objective Delta things. The, yeah. Right. They don't teach it as... Where's the divide between North and South? what does geography and, do? Yeah. They just say, oh, this is what the Egyptians say, and we're going to take it, and this is yep. United Whole. And this and is how we're going. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think using this, let's now transition to the New Kingdom. Yeah. When, okay. when for the first time... We people, do have empire. There's a regular <laughs> consensus, not consensus, but a regular kind of consensus in terminology, at least, mm -hmm. that we can call the New Kingdom the, the period of empire, yeah. the period of the Egyptian empire. Which yeah. we know Kara hates. <laughs> I do. I really don't like yeah. that. Tell, tell us about that. Well, so, first, what does the empire constitute? If we're air, air quote empire. Okay. Well, let's, because Egypt is governing, ruling, exploiting. Let Let me imagine this from the perspective of, of a textbook, which is yes. making a map, like a yes. textbook for you know anyone. Me in yeah. twelfth or ninth grade yeah. that's making a map. Yeah, you look at Bill Manley. You know yeah. your your text. Your yeah, any history maps. of ancient Egypt yeah. books, and, and it'll say the New Kingdom Egyptian, Empire, yeah. and it'll show like purple over yep. this yeah. part and pink over. Ge here. Of a geographical yeah. it'd boundary, go, it'd probably go in the north. It would be go up to Katna, mm -hmm. maybe something like that, and yeah. in the south it would go down to the Fifth Cataract, yeah. Nubia. Yeah, which is really damn far, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. too far. But anyway, so that's the and it it grows and contracts and yeah. and changes in various yeah. ways but that's the the height of its extent. Yeah, and and of course we know that you know Tutmosis the 1st and Tutmosis mm -hmm. the 3rd crossed the Euphrates. Yeah. Yeah. Um but that crossing is not included on these images. Yeah. Um cuz that's recognized as ephemeral for some reason. But yeah. you other... push in but then you come back and you made your point yeah. but it's like you created put up a your your Hadrian's wall. Your force field. <laughs> yeah. And then you come back to the safe spot. Mhm. Mm yeah, um, so then why do you like the terminology yeah. empire? Me? Yes. Because empire means that you... Okay, so first you have a, a place that's based on different ethnicities, religious freedom, um, the allowance and support of, of, of differences within this space. So that's the first thing, which I don't see with Egypt. I see Egyptian... Um, cultural systems demanding that people come in and Egyptianize if they come from outside. So I, I know that this is always going to be exceptions, yes. and that's fine. So you're basing, when we think, like, what's a good empire then? Like Roman yeah, or so Persian? Like, yeah, so, you know, Rome can have, you can be Jewish and be a citizen. You can mm -hmm. be Christian and be a citizen at a certain point. Yes. You, yeah. can, you can worship um, this goddess Mithras, or that god, yeah. whatever. You can be yeah. Egyptian and be a citizen. You can be Italian and be a citizen. And the other number two thing about the empire 
that I think is essential is that it is based on growth mm-hmm. and growth is the thing that, that is its raison d'etre. It's what it is about. And generally empires are very much about growth at human expense and are based on human capital. Exploitative. Human, yes. Yeah. But, but the, the Which is why demands, the em- Roman Empire has to keep growing is because yes. they keep needing more money. And the diminishing returns that you have to keep on invading so that you keep on bringing in your enslaved yeah, people. Yeah, more gold, so booty. Th- and, and your resources so that you can grow more. And each time you create your new 10% of elites in Germania or Gaul yeah. or wherever, not in that order, but but you, you're creating a larger empire. Egypt, it doesn't have the multiculturalism in built in, baked in. That in a way that I can or see it has that, a different form of multiple. Maybe, and I'm willing to listen to that. But it also doesn't have. She's I willing. am. I'm willing. <laughs> She's willing. I'm willing. But it also doesn't have the growth factor. It goes to I'm the push fourth back. cataract, the Orontes, boom, done, and that's the empire again. Same, and so it's it's hegemony to me. It's when some kings have the resources and political power to do so. And then when they don't, they come back and it splits in two. And then when they do have it, it goes back to exactly the same spot and then it comes back. And then when real, and then here's my third point, and then I'll let you talk. <laughs> but when real empire, and I mean real empire with a capital E, comes in, then the Egyptians just get their asses kicked again and again and again and get subsumed into empire because they have never had to deal with the internal competition with which empire is honed, sharpened, and and uh, made functional. They've mm. nev- they don't know how to release the Kraken. They don't have a Kraken. Mm-hmm. And when the Kraken is released upon them, they're just like, oh no, oh, okay, like yeah, them. we're done. And that's it. And see, so here's my argument, is that I think the, the, re- the reason that the Egyptians are unsuccessful against these empires of the capital E, as we're defining them, is not because of any inherent failure or lack of expansive tendencies, it's because of a particular way that they imagined the world mm. and they, the, that they imagined the peoples of the world. And it's a failure. And again, I don't want to say failure It's the way here. the geography has conditioned them and worked with them to see the world in a different way. Yeah, but we, I, we I, all I, know, we, I agree, but we all know that geography can be overcome. Yes, it can. Yeah. By, it can. by powerful enough ideologies, it, it can, can be overcome. Um, Which is why in Egypt, the breadbasket of the world, you're not supposed to drink any alcohol. Yeah. But anyway, mm-hmm. go on. The, the one mm-hmm. thing I will push back on, or that I will kind of, dig into deeper is that when we talk about the expansion of empires in general empires expand very quickly yes, yes. like territorial state once yes. and i and again i think the only way you can do this is through like an alexander idea. once an idea I takes think of place, alexander the great it yeah happens and he's a god and he takes over the and whole it's world like, boom. And, and then, then he boom, dies he's dead and then they split it up and in, into yeah. more and then but then it doesn't take that much longer to then subsume well someone else comes in and says the persians come in and they're yeah. like Take it all, like yeah. envelop yeah. all of that, yeah. plus Persia. Yeah. So it gets even bigger. And it gets even bigger. And then Rome comes in and subsumes all of that. And, and the, but they can never get all of it. Rome yeah. Can, well, they yeah. always go further to the they west. Hit they can Parthia. never get all of and, it. And we should yeah. both. We should also talk about this is a point that was raised by Robert Rollinger uh, mm-hmm. in his talks last year that both Persia and Macedonia are peripheral areas mm-hmm. of secondary state formation yeah. is the key. Yeah. Egypt does unleash some secondary state formation. And the 25th dynasty is a case in point, right? That you can create an elite that will then be empowered and and gain the restricted knowledge to be able to fight back. 
But and and one wonders what would have happened if if uh, Taharka had not been destroyed or if by this, Yeah, I was going to say if the Syrians didn't come down. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What what Taharka could have potentially built, or is he always a product of his geography that will never allow him to get out of that north south? Yeah, that little geographic pocket to be you know the east west is always easier if you yeah. take cultural geography as your foundation. Yeah. So. It's not the secondary state formation doesn't work. Levant bites back on Egypt as well. In fact, the Levant is what takes, it subsumes Egypt. So my Completely totally. my thing about the Egyptian empires, and I think Nubia and the Levant function differently in relation yes. to Egypt. I totally could. Before we get there, yeah. I want to say one more thing about the territorial expansion and how rapidly it happens. Mm. Yeah. But after it happens, it reaches a limit. Yep. Yes. And once it reaches that Ooh. limit, it's really hard to overcome those boundaries. Diminish returns. Yeah. So, yeah. so for example, in, in um, you know, in, per, in Achaemenid Persia, we mm -hmm. can talk about actually Egypt as that land. Yeah. Because they conquer Egypt. They yeah. conquer it early under Cambyses. Yeah. They conquer it before Darius. Yeah. And then they lose it. Yeah. And then they spend... They can't get it back. You know, this is why... You, actually, I was talking with one of our colleagues, Raheem Shayagan, yeah. um, you know, over, over tea a few days ago. And he was saying that there are three enemies that the Persian Empire... Uh, kind of proliferates throughout throughout the region of their control, not necessarily to Egypt, but in in kind of all areas of the empire. Um, there are three peoples that are always dominated, and one of them is the the Scythians, mm -hmm. the other is the Greeks, and the thirds are the, are the Egyptians. The ones... And that's probably because they're the ones that got away. Yeah. yeah. You know, the other two, they're the kind of perennial enemies. They set the limits, mm -hmm. but the Egyptians should be in the limit, but they got away. And that's why it's so important for the Persians to come back, back. and reconquer yeah. Egypt, huh. which they do before Alexander. In, and for Rome, Persia is the limit. Exactly. Yes. This is, so Trajan conquered mm -hmm. a lot of Mesopotamia. And the first thing that Hadrian does was say, this is too much. Yeah, we're going to stop. I'm going to give it, and I'm give it well, back Well, it destroyed. Yeah. It's, Persia is what Parthia is what destroyed Mark Antony and Cleopatra and made Egypt be subsumed into the Roman Empire entirely mm -hmm. because he tried to invade Parthia before we have too far. a united yeah. um, authoritarian Rome, but instead a more competitive... Um, late late, uh, yeah. late stage late, democracy. Exactly, whatever you <laughs> want to call it. Late yeah. republic, yeah. right? But it's, it's that invasion and that attempt to, to go too far and extend beyond your diminishing returns. Yeah. And well, there's like a, extend your... beyond the imagination. That's what I would say. Oh my god! But, but it's like, that's but that's cool. what. It, so it's like but it's the always... imagination is real. So then the state, the fiction is reified, yeah, and, yeah, ah, yeah. Yeah. and then it's circle. real. Yeah. Oh my god. yeah. But then, so taking a global perspective, like now, what empires do we have, and what's the extent of these limits? And do we want to get into the New Kingdom case yeah. before okay. we get there? Because yes. I think maybe yes. we'll go chronologically, yes. and then sure. we can speculate to our hearts' content. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, so New Kingdom cases. We spoke upon empire. Yeah, and the, the limits and the problems of using the term empire. Yes. Um, and then I think, Jordan, your question was, but then there's a difference, there's often said to be a difference between the northern yes. expansion and the southern I expansion. I always see Nubia, I always see Nubia not as an empire because I think it is Egypt at a certain time. It becomes... The, Dangerous words. I know. But like, their cultural affinity, you know, they're from a pan-Nilotic culture originally. Yeah. They've always shared close cultural um, movements back and forth. So you would they say worship the same gods. Nubia is as much a part of Nilotic culture as the Delta is a yeah. part of Nilotic yeah. culture. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So yeah. then I didn't... How does this manifest ar archaeologically and culturally and textually? I mean, it's spoken of as they're another. Mm -hmm. 
you know, they're the Nubians, they're the vile Kush or something like this. And the Egyptians set them apart as other when they depict their enemies under, you know, their feet, the nine bows. and But the land that the Nubians are living in yes. is at the same time called the God's Land. Yes, it's the home place of Hathor, home place of Amun. The source of the water. Yeah. Source of the water. It's, it's also where the, it's the Egypt. distant eye goes to. Yeah. But it's, it's a not... geographical place that is not foreign. If it's not the Hasu, right? The sandstone bedrock is not arable the way the limestone bedrock of Egypt is arable. You always have a difference from Jebel Silsila yeah. when it changes to sandstone and you cannot support a population and thus an army. You will always have a very starkly different cultural system just because of farming, non-farming, pastoralism, not, yeah, you have both, right? But it's it's a, not that you don't farm in Nubia. Of course you do, but your farming will never be able to create that hoarded wheat. But, but because you have a state, you can send grain from somewhere else down there, and they can specialize in gold mining or sandstone <laughs> mining or something. And the gold is the target. Yes. The gold is the target. But I think there's also, but there's also an illusion that despite whatever limitations of crops that exist, that this is that these limitations did not exist at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so you see this, for example, in the settlements and the temples mm -hmm. that are the massive temples, temples like Abu Simbel, yeah. temples like Soleb that are built in Nubia. They're not building the same things in the Levant. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, yes. Things like the Nauri decree where temples, I forget what temple, I think it's the temple of Osiris at Abydos, but I could be wrong here. Um, that, this is a stila, uh, there was a decree under Seti the First, yes, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a stila, rock carved, yes. I believe. So there's yeah. much more monumentalism, and much more of a throwdown. Yeah, but but in also an economic, because they're saying we the temple owns lands yeah. as yeah. far south as Nubia, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Um, there's an involvement. Yeah. There's arguably more ridiculously obscene violence in Nubia than there is in the Levant. Yes. It's because I think, I think this is because and they- And this is Orosh Matic's work. Well, yeah, maybe you're I, actually seeing the resistance that we were just talking about yeah. in the early periods. You're seeing the resistance and you're also seeing the Egyptian global system being like, I don't understand Tested. this. You should be us. You should be exactly like mm -hmm. us. You live on the same land. We should have no trouble imposing upon you and you should be susceptible to the same weapons of the mind that we were susceptible to. Oh, it's to. kind of like when Russia goes into Bucha, which I read was yep. predominantly mm -hmm. ethnically Russian, yep. and that's where they committed the worst atrocities because they were shocked that the people of Bucha did not all just immediately come along with them. I think that's them. exactly right. Oh, fuck. Well, and okay. it's like my family... I hadn't thought about it that Back way. then, it was Russia, but they identified, self-identified as not Russian and as Poles. Mm. But like technically, they were living geographical borders mm -hmm. in Russia. My you family know. was probably, yeah. you know, my family probably moved <laughs> We can to, all talk about how Russia fucked up our families. Yeah, well, my family, my family on my dad's side is Jewish, mm -hmm. and they probably moved to that area when it was still the Polish-Lithuanian yes, Commonwealth. Yes, exactly, when we, we welcomed Jews, medieval Jewish Europe people. and Renaissance Europe that we never talk about. Yes, it was the, I know. It was the only Respublica in Europe at yes. the time. Never talk about it. Yes. Why? Um, and they were tolerant of yeah, Jews. Yeah, all the Jewish people and came there. And that's why all the Jews moved there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, the state, again, this is a state that failed to update its weapons of the mind, that failed to update its sense of what a globalist perspective meant, and then was carved up by these absolutist rulers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's why my family always said that we were Russian, because mm -hmm. when the state was carved up, we wound up in yeah, Russia. Like our Which, documentation, some says Russian, some says Polish. 
which means that Egypt, that created arguably the best weapon of the mind as a state par excellence, it also, in the way the Nubia was a target for its gold, Egypt became a target because then every authoritarian wanted mm -hmm, to come in mm -hmm. and claim it. And they wanted to be like, I'm the pharaoh Like now, Alexander. Bitches. Alexander going yes. to Starting get with his... Maybe before Alexander, yeah. arguably, because I would say that the Persians did this. Mm -hmm. And the Syrians, while they did not settle in Egyptianized, to use a loaded term, um, they certainly put that notch in their belt yeah. and um, made Stila showing their, their mm -hmm. domination over this place. The Nubian case is also interesting because the Nubian case, in it seems like they were actually largely successful of coming in and saying, we are the actual wielders yes. of the weapon of the mind. Yes. This mm -hmm. weapon of the mind that you that, that has been the pyramid, here for so long. The pyramid, that's our sun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Nile, that's our water. All of that, and those claims are still being made And today. because, mm -hmm. we yes. go back to your north is better, they're in the Egyptian conception yeah. of, the there are more north. Yeah. Yeah. The south, they're mm -hmm. closer to all the origins the of these things. The source of the sun. And Amun. The south and, is, yeah. is the beginnings of the sun. Yeah. They're closer to the luxury products that that um, are an index to the present of, mm -hmm. the presence of God. That yeah, when, when you, you smell the incense, it's like, oh, that's, yeah. that's divine. The that's incense is ours. The gold is ours. Yeah. Yeah. Where's all this stuff coming from? Our land, yeah. Yeah. So, and then you don't see this happening in the Levant. Not at all. Like, <laughs> in, and, and and again, I think we we all just read a essay by uh, Federico mm -hmm. uh, Zangani. Yeah, yeah. Zangani. Yeah. Um, who's a PhD from Brown. Mm -hmm. uh, now at um, Charles University in Post Prague. Postdoc in Prague. Yeah. Right now, yeah. Um, and basically, he makes the same argument um, that the empire in the Levant never existed. And yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. But then, empire in Nubia, I still would rather call it an a hegemonic occupation but what do you guys think i don't care what we call it because again i think terminology is so fraught well and it changes how you think about it if you say it's an empire then you get all these connotations of what's an empire and you're trying to make it fit into these yeah. boxes yeah call Instead it whatever you want just to find look at how what you're calling it what's actually going on between the nubians and the egyptians and their relationship yeah 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 I mean, in my perspective, I would say there's something more imperial happening in the south yeah. than what is happening in the north. Agreed. Yeah, I, I can I can buy that. Yeah. Whatever you want to. And there is more multiculturalism in that sense mm -hmm. and more allowance of multiculturalism, even acceptance of a Nubian perspective of. Yeah, you of see Nubian wigs becoming Niles. in fashion. Yes, it's true. You see Nubian names. You mm -hmm. see Nubians entering, you know, very high echelon offices and mm -hmm. getting, you know, tombs and all these things. So. And there is this idea of growth. Yeah. You know, you, there is an, an intent to move to... Push the cataracts. The fifth, yeah, keep pushing it. The, something like that. I suppose I could I could buy that too. Um, no, and, but, there, <laughs> but also the idea of uh, enslaved people yes. fits as well yep. because the, the live captives and the bringing in of people as an economic boon, it, it, you do see it more from the southern lands than you do from the Levant. Not that you don't you, see it in yeah. the north. But the numbers of people that have to work in these mines and gold um, yeah. installations, I mean, yeah, it's it, it does form a more imperial, traditional, <laughs> traditionally imperial uh, definition. Yeah. No. yeah. I think the interesting looking at this, um, again, in the perspective of Nubia from the late period, the one thing that changes in mm. from the Egyptian point of view is that all of a sudden, not only are you dealing with the Le Levant and Nubia, 
you're suddenly dealing with this massive Ooh, influx of people yes. from Libya, yeah. exactly yeah. as you said, Jordan, yeah. that I think they didn't really see coming. Yeah. <laughs> that they were, yeah. and then- They're the, like, wait, out of the desert? Yeah. Like, what's going and on? And like, out of the desert to such the extent that we haven't seen these people or we hadn't interacted with them on yeah. such levels for thousands of years that we were still copying the same yeah. inscriptions of like, the standard like, like Libyan stereotype yeah. Libyan because we haven't seen these people and all of a sudden they're like huge communities coming in yep. from the desert and these are the communities that they that actually became in some ways the most Egyptianized that settled the most because this is where they're, they're again this is where the Egyptian weapons of the mind were not targeted to mm-hmm. deflect but instead had no choice essentially but to say okay no actually we'll okay. convince you yeah. And they did convince them to some degree, but I think that's when you get conflict between the North and South in the late period, because then you have the Nubians that say, Wait. Oh no, no, we were we're yeah, actually yeah. the true, you know, nilotic people mm-hmm. in some way. And then the Libyans that are like They're trying to out Egypt. We're each other. Egyptians. <laughs> yeah. We're our, you know, maybe they don't define themselves as nilotic, but they yeah. define themselves as Egyptians. Um, which is then I think why you get such a harsh counter reaction mm-hmm. to anything Nubian in the reign of uh, Nekau II. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. I mean, the, you know, the the Libyans are always going to be wrapped up with the Sea Peoples. Yeah. This oh, well, that was my next question. Was like yeah, go on. The late Bronze Age, we see what would traditionally be termed increasing globalization, right? Yeah. All these people yeah. of West Asia, the Mediterranean, North Africa. Pure polity interaction yes. in the Amarna Huge. letters. The Italian Peninsula. Italian Peninsula, yeah, the Sardinia, yeah. you know, yeah. all these. Sicilians. Yeah. yeah, Sicilians, like all these people interacting, you know, hugely. And then we have a quote unquote collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, people, different groups moving around. And so do we see this part of this empire where there's always going to be a fall? Because they're unsustainable. The worst thing for a globalist imagination, and I think this is something that we're seeing today, Mm. is when you say we are in this community and, you know, I am just like my colleague in France or India or uh, name another liberal democracy. Yeah. And then you actually meet these people and you're like, mind blown. Oh, we have nothing in common. Mm -hmm. This is the biggest kind of detriment to globalism, the biggest weapon against it. Because globalism allows you to imagine not only geographical borders, but it allows you to picture exactly who these people are for better and worse. Mm -hmm. So you can see them as, you know, just like you and me. Or you could see them as needing to be educated by the imperial European system and enlightened. Yeah. Um, Like you've never felt more American being out of America. Yeah, but whatever your imagination of these, of of another person is, is so far removed from this other person's identity. Yes. But that doesn't mean we throw away universalism. Of course not. Because we're still comparing all of the same economic, political, military and ideological systems and they can all be compared it means when new people enter the picture this is the biggest threat to an established system Mm -hmm. of thought because all of a sudden you have new ideas that could not have been anticipated think of i mean as someone with anxiety and i think i'm speaking to the room here uh, (laughs) think of how many times you kind of prepare yourself for a social interaction and be like okay i'm going to say this and i think the other person's going to say this and this is never what happens yeah and then you're like abort abort like what do i do what do i do now this was not what i planned and And i think this is what globalist ideology this is what all ideologies do to some extent they say they make you feel safe by saying this is kind of how the other will look when you encounter them and then you actually encounter them and this is not at all how they look it's It's not at all how they sound Yeah. yeah yeah 
But so in the Bronze so had, Age, just put a twenty fifth, twenty sixth dynasty reality into a an abstract sort of bubble. Yeah. yeah. So with the collapse of the Bronze Age, mm -hmm. do you think it's because, with all the various reasons for collapse that you can read about and watch our late Bronze Age collapse episode, yeah. Yeah. because of all these unforeseen things happening climactically, migrations, warfare, fiscally, fiscally, like. Everything, you know, shit hitting the fan that they weren't prepared for, mm -hmm. that that's why people weren't able to evolve or adjust regionally. Like, Egypt's always said to be the one that, like, weathers the storm yeah. and isn't as affected. And is it because... We don't say that the 21st through 24th dynasties are a foreign occupation of, of Egypt, mm -hmm. when you really could. Mm -hmm. You could. These mm -hmm. are feather-wearing chiefs of Ma. Yeah. And then they come back. There's a little interlude in the 25th where they get kicked out. Yeah. And then they come back in Dynasty 26 and the feather-wearing chiefs of Meshwesh come back. Mm -hmm. Are they Egyptian? Are they not? Um, well, so, so what does collapse, what effect does collapse have on a state? <laughs> it has to redefine itself or not exist. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's unpredictable. Yeah. It's entirely unpredictable, and that's why the collapse happens because it is unpredictable. It, because it's because it cannot be imagined. It cannot you can't be foreseen. see it, so you can't put up measures to fix it yeah. preemptively. States are remarkably resilient, and let's use as an example perhaps um, Mesopotamia. Yeah, mm -hmm. and let's use let's just again. I'm going to like gloss over a whole lot of problems here, and let's just assume for a minute that the theories of the salinization of Sumer mm -hmm. are completely correct. Mm -hmm. Let's say that. The Sumerians were during the Orthri period were doing their you know working their fields and seeing the salt, seeing the apocalypse, seeing the global the environmental apocalypse encroach in. What, and what Fair, are we global. Talking about? We're talking about now like two thousand. Yeah, it'd be like yeah, yeah fifth dynasty. Um, and so we're seeing you're they're seeing the apocalypse and they collapse, but we have no record of. And again, this is assuming that this is the cause of that yeah. southern Mesopotamia collapse, which we don't know. They so couldn't farm okay. anymore. Yeah, We don't know, and this is debated. And for listeners, yeah. we should say that it's hotly debated. Yeah. So I'm speculating a lot here. But it's possible. And there's n the, the, the cultural continuity continues like nothing ever happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, oh, we just, you know, we still have a, you know, kind of... Uh, token priesthood in Eridu, and we go back there once in a while. Babylon still has an Eridu gate. Mm -hmm. um, but we never talk, like it was never Armistead. We never overexploited our resources, God forbid. And we're kind of seeing the same thing in the capitalist system with, with uh, climate change. You know, like our system is quite capable of weathering such disasters without reevaluating itself. Mm -hmm. It's only when the dis these disasters can be, are not foreseen. So for example, if us living in Southern California, if all of a sudden earthquake. we were faced with earthquake, but yeah. all of a sudden say let's where the water crisis continues to get worse and worse. You turn your I, cap on. I have MD. to imagine that desalinization plants in the ocean would suddenly someone would invent something yeah. new. There'd be some new technology that, that, that does yeah. not make them cost prohibitive, or someone would in, 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 invent. So if it's inventable, someone would invent a solution. Yeah, but. You have to be forced into that. You have to be forced into it or the system has to be able to accommodate it. Yeah. And our system, the capitalist system, one thing that I can speak for uh, in favor of it is that it is able to accommodate kind of these um, 
sudden shifts that then well, require like this. COVID. Yeah, COVID is the perfect right? example. Like, we need a vaccine stat yeah, yeah. and like get on that. And, and they, it, yeah, they, they developed a vaccine invented, so quickly, but they also have made millions and billions of people dollars. invented the vaccine, the best vaccine, yeah. lost the most people per capita. Yeah, but I meant the so I'm just like that. Yes. yeah, no, of course. Well, <laughs> yes. but that's, that's because exactly. those people were expendable they, while related. they were innovating the vaccine. But they're related, right? Because again, a lot of the people that were lost were not lost because necessarily they said they were like, oh, we're going to be guinea pigs and we're going to yeah. just throw ourselves into these tests. They were lost because they said, oh, everything's going to be fine. This is all an illusion. We're going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Our system no is durable enough yeah. that anything that would challenge it is only an illusion. Yep, and, and that's then why they died. millions died. Which people still don't believe. Yeah. And people don't believe it was a threat and still is a threat. And see, this is how systems collapse. If you have enough people that say, oh, this is never, this is not a possible threat to our system. We're going to be okay. January 6th. <laughs> because we cannot, we cannot liberally, literally accommodate this into our worldview. you can argue systems never collapse. The South lost the Civil War of the United States, but it never went anywhere. And it's just waiting and reconstituting mm -hmm. itself and growing stronger to become the Confederate whatever rebirth. And you could argue that Poland can get carved up into 17 different bits mm -hmm. and then it'll be like, no, Poles are here still. Mm -hmm. Or Ukraine's we, probably a good yes, example of yes. this. And, and there are many places that are subsumed into another place and then they, they, they foster whatever that identity is and they can grow it again as a secondary state formation or as a tertiary or developed yeah. or whatever it is, but collapse also this um, wet dream we have of it's all there and then it's gone and we're like an apocalyptic yeah. Mad Max land where yeah. we're milking women. This doesn't really, <laughs> I know it's like the worst example I can think of. Oh, you're going to have to edit out that squeak. <laughs> I'll turn it down. <laughs> like think of Cormac McCarthy's yes, The Road, right? Yeah. Where they keep the but women that's everyone's, they put in a house and they're like, that's everyone's like milk, darkest right? fear, right? right? Is but like it generally it's not going to happen. happen. Rome yeah, right. is the perfect example. The collapse of the fall of the Western Roman Empire yeah. in 476. Not really a thing. Not uh, yeah. Everyone continued to think of themselves as Roman. This is why Justinian goes and reconquers it. It's only all of a sudden when there's repeated failures by mm -hmm. the quote unquote Romans to maintain the security and safety of the Italian peninsula, especially with the Lombards, like mm -hmm. Justinian kind of got fucked with the Lombards. That I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You're telling me something. Uh, I don't know. That that because you have a migration of peoples essentially. Yeah. Again, an unforeseen migration after this kind of restoration of this we're reclaiming this the global Roman vision. Ideal. And then all of a sudden the wild card comes in, the vision can't accommodate it. The logistics can't I'm accommodate like, it. Hey. It collapses. <laughs> and this is why the Pope then is like, oh, Charlemagne, hey, you're looking pretty good yeah. over there. Because yeah. this is a, the, he it's transitions to a, a yeah. new vision of globalism. Yeah, they're like, I'm going to move to France. <laughs> yeah. But, and even ideologically, you can kill polytheism, but can you? Mm -hmm. No. And it's all coming back. It again, always, yeah. Right? So. Yeah, um, we, we can try to stamp these things out, but they will not die. Well, so going back to Egypt, we have periods of intermediate, so-called intermediate periods where mm -hmm. there is a typically understood to be the state or the unified governing body collapses mm -hmm. and people devolve into devolve into these polities that are self, you know, break down, but that 
and then they are reunified and then you get you know the middle kingdom or yeah. the new kingdom coming up together what or does, they have to be reconquered or something my, my question is also what does rulership look like during these intermediate periods are these kings saying i am only i'm yeah, the we lord still of have kings only lists. lower egypt and yeah. not upper egypt no they're saying I'm i am still i am still conceptually i you know my my reality is still this globalist yep. reality but do we have less people that buying into it? Or why do we as scholars think it is then intermediate period? I think we have multiple conceptions of who... This is where the authoritarianism comes yeah. in. Because yeah. you have essentially people dividing it up and saying, yeah. oh, no, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the true authoritarian. Yeah. No, no, I'm the true authoritarian. And then we're like, wait. And then, you know, Kerma and Nubius, like, I'm yeah. the true authoritarian. And, and, and also, we see then more kind of local regional rulers being like, I took care of my people. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the king. It was mm -hmm. me being a mayor, no mark or something of this region. That's being in, like, I actually was the one who did it. That's in some way, I think, a form of resistance yeah. to an, a, vision, a particular vision of globalism. Yes. I don't want to give Ankatifi credit yes. for actually like being a, a champion of, of the underrepresented. Yeah. <laughs> but he is framing himself very cleverly there, mm -hmm. I think, as Taking the source of, of resistance. Taking advantage of this gap. Yeah. Yeah. But going back to what you said earlier, Jonathan, that... It's all our fictional creation. It's our imagination. It's who believes in it hard enough mm -hmm. that it, the intermediate period is when you don't have the creation of the weapons of the mind that are as effective. Mm -hmm. yeah. The pyramid is the most effective weapon of the mind bar none. It still works on our minds. Mm -hmm. And you're not able to do that in an intermediate period. Sixth Dynasty ends and you're like, we're just not going to build any. We can't. Yeah. We can't create the weapon of the mind. And without that architectural slash artistic production, it's it's amazing how strong that binds the people together mm -hmm. with their own wills being subsumed, even if they might be a little cynical or, oh, no, I don't want... But they, they, they are bound together under that thing. And when you can't maintain that through craft, through hoarding, through acquisition of materials, then you can't Labor. keep the yeah. whole appearance Mm -hmm. of the show going. It's like I, The Wizard of Oz. I have a great... <laughs> it's like as soon as The Wizard's revealed, it's like, oh, well. I have a great transition, though, mm. to, I think, contemporary issues. Okay. So you're absolutely correct. Mm. How does then the 17th dynasty see success here? They have to demonize somebody they and have kick to, them out. Yeah. yeah. They have to By make another... also making Egypt great again. Oh, yeah. In a way. Yes. And this is and this is not my phraseology. So I think, a, wasn't this Danny Candelar? Yeah, came up with yeah, this? Danny yeah. Candelar. So just for those who don't know, 17th Dynasty is the beginning of the New Kingdom, and the kings who rise, Kamosa, Ahmosa, before that second Enrei Tao, they're warrior kings, and they position themselves through a new propaganda that talks about Levantine rulers called who self-identified as the Heka Hasu, mm -hmm. rulers of foreign lands. And these 17th dynasty Theban kings are like, we are going to, they don't say it explicitly, but it is true. They're going to make Egypt great again. And they say they expel the foreigners. They expel these bad people and they demonize them. Mm -hmm. They turn them in, they, they dehumanize them. Mm -hmm. And when they go after them, they're cutting off their hands, stringing them on necklaces around yeah. their, their necks, giving it's, them to the king, all, all this crazy It's a very shit. modern thing in a way because they're, they're really immunizing the, they're immunizing and reconstituting the Egyptian body politic exactly as yes. the old global imagination mm -hmm. imagination says it should be yes who is egyptian who is not egyptian we're gonna we're done with this this multi-culty bullshit of you get to have this god and you get to have that god no it's our way of the highway and do you speak english mm -hmm. right yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah if you speak semitic get the fuck out yeah. yes yeah. Oh my God. Or stop <laughs> using it and become fully Egyptian. Yeah. And yeah. and there, so there are times of coming back to weapons of the mind. The, essentially, the weapon of the mind is a wall. 
Mm-hmm. It is build the wall. That well, is the one they did. That <laughs> makes you feel safe, makes you feel relaxed in your fatherly embrace. And mm-hmm. you're like, oh, okay, now I know who I am and who they mm-hmm. are. And now I know how to keep myself safe and how to protect myself from the other. Well, this is also why, and now we'll get into the contemporary perspective, yeah, I think. Yeah, don't because, we feel it? <laughs> because, but also it's, you know, ha- maybe half of the country does feel safe by the build the wall mentality, but the other half says, this is ridiculous. Yes. What is actually a border? My are over there and I work over there. Yeah. And, yeah. Or what is actually a border has totally changed. Yeah. 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 When I want to think too also yeah like what are borders how do the egyptians conceptualize them mm-hmm. and we can speak to like the delta when was that actually fully encapsulated um how long did it actually stay the hekahasut you know we there were 11 people there from very early old Ramses kingdom the second is 11 person but anywho yes if you want to yes Ramses is what does he call Ramses is like the join between Haru, between Syria and Egypt, mm-hmm. Eastern Delta. Yeah, it's it's like the nail that connects them. But and like his forcing a more name is Seti, southern outlook. Desert outlet. animal, yeah. desert god, mm-hmm. and and foreign god as well. Levantine yes. god. Yeah. Baal. Yeah. Yeah. Should we talk about more? About I was going to say uh, kind of um, contemporary applications of this. Yes, and yeah. two things that I thought of. Obviously, Russia, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But I also want to think about Britain. And England's going through a very weird time right now, Britain, <laughs> the Queen dying. And I, I thought the Queen's death was very weird. We, people, I felt like, felt a renewed attachment to monarchy. You were seeing, like, you know, it was on 21st, even here, people, it was on. People lost their sovereign, yeah. which is, I think, as someone that does not identify. What does that mean? They, this is a complicated question. I know, that's why I'm asking with such so what, what I what I think that the body of the sovereign does is it provides a stable source of meaning on which globalization, on which all of these scary ideas, all of these big ideas, all of these ideas that make us able to live in our human communities get projected onto. So Queen Elizabeth II was a weapon of the mind in human form. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, this is where, again, I'll reference the king's two bodies because, of course, she's still She's a mortal human being. woman, yeah. but there's also a component of her that is constituted of all these imaginations that is her secondary divine body. Is as so I think that's kind of the most simplistic way that I would explain it. So then when she dies... People lose that. It's like... And, and, and the process of transferring it to Charles <laughs> is not simple or easy. And Why? It's, never, Why? it's never simple or easy. You have to gain you that trust even, all over again, you, right? It's complicated. He's been there for so many years. He's 70 years old. It's very different now. So first of all, we're living in a, a different time than any other period of you could argue this for transition. any time at any point exactly, in history. Exactly. But I think the one thing that's different now as opposed to back then is that you Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth has had her identity, her body, her life visualized more and is consumable yeah. by mm-hmm. more people than so for for example it's compared to Victoria. Victoria's image was probably seen by thousands of millions of people, perhaps, you mm-hmm. know, and, and across multiple continents. But it was just, you know, it was the picture on the wall of Her the profile. office that you'd go into, of the colonial yeah. administration that you'd go into. Or, um, you know, when you were forced to do your your marching to be like, look how British we are now, because thankfully you've come in <laughs> you and civilized us. us. Um, you know, maybe that picture was displayed then. But with Elizabeth, you actually get 
a people and this is the other thing about social media and and media in general these days that you can actually kind of form a personal. celebrity personal relationship Stars, with these people just like us yes. yeah she has five cocktails Look, she a eats. day. Yeah, like when what I heard she... she had five cocktails a day. I felt I was like, oh, okay, I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you. Well, it's the whole issue. I mean, with when you hear people today, like, who are you going to vote for for president? And they're like, well, I don't know. I don't like that person. Like, I don't think I could hang out with them. And I'm like, you're not going to. Yeah. Like, they're the president. Like, you're not getting a beer with them. But people want to feel like they could get a beer with that person. Yeah and hang out. This speaks and, to social media or social, yes. or not even social media literacy, but just media literacy, mm -hmm. which, you know, I'll speak to, you know, the boomer generation, I think is a very different understanding yes. than I do. Or, and I'm sure I have a very different understanding of what, you know, our current undergraduate students. Oh yeah. yeah. But yeah. are you saying that Kim Kardashian has sovereignty? I think, so I think this is a complicated question <laughs> Can that again. be the name of the I podcast episode? Does Kim yes. Kardashian have sovereignty? Yes. I think she does, but also again, this is after the execute after the public execution or after the especially in, in liberal democracies that have rejected the the monarch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In some ways, and Jordan, you'll remember this from our kingship yeah. class, that in some ways all of that meaning that was provided by the body of the king has to go somewhere. Celebrities. And one of the answers that Jordan, God, yeah. God bless you, hated me for making her read, <laughs> was that it goes into kind of neuroses. It goes into mental health. It goes into um, psychoanalysis. Who's yes. this? This is a book. This is multiple books. Um, uh, Giorgio Agamben, Eric Santner, yeah, uh, Bataille Santner. as yeah. well. That for those people, so it's the same with Martin Luther nailing the theses on the door. As soon as you remove the Pope as the sovereign, then it then it goes into a neurosis of God doesn't love me and a, or or like a, a Lutheran just, sort. Of I think it just goes somewhere. You can't else. displace it onto something. Now it's internal. Yeah, it goes somewhere. I'm not else. displacing. It has to migrate. Oh, there's a queen. So you have She's going to brimstone, and everyone's got to take Jesus into their heart, or yeah. they're going to fry forever. And you create a religion that's about it, it's as, it's a personal responsibility. But what if you are atheist or agnostic, and you don't have a monarch? Where does it go? Then you have mental illness. <laughs> 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 Which, I, you know, we, we should Me. say that we're, we're not making an argument because a lot of actually conservative theorists have said exactly yes. this. Yes. And that this is you don't why have Jesus. you need that authoritarian. This is why you need Jesus. This Bring is why you need the Bring back the family state. and your patriarch exactly. in the family. Exactly. Because then you have Provide your place. Comfort. And of course, we're only talking about men and we're only talking about white men, really. Yes, yes, yes. Um, no, no, black men and, and men of color. That's true, but they're participate not. Participate in Trumpian. They're not included thinking. in the usual rhetoric. They are yeah. now. They need those men to keep their power. Well, they're yes. going to take them with them. But yeah. Kanye. Yeah. Kanye. Yes, there's exactly. more than there's more and less crazy than Kanye, but yes. Yeah. But yeah. Yes. So it but goes so, into so, it goes into your anxiety. Okay, I have to think So then about for so, so I think the Kim Queen's Kar death, So Kim Kardashian Kim does yeah. have sovereignty from yes. that respect because again, this is the last chapter of Cantoritz as well of it's called Dante and man-centered mm -hmm. kingship where in some ways you are all your the bearers name. of your second body in a way with the albatross around our neck mm -hmm. of all that that means sure Being. i think i think he doesn't make it he makes it sound much more hopeful yeah and i think it is a, an it's an ambivalent thing it's a very ambivalent thing um so when the queen died all of these people that are like well, dancing in the streets like the irish step, step yeah. dancing like yay Happy. another one bites the dust you know that that made the yeah. rounds 
and the Irish are like, we've been under the boot of this this hegemony for so long. I mean, look at Irish history. You I, you got to understand this. Though. Of like, course, yeah. no, of yeah. course. And and I grew up listening to those stories. And I do, you know, my father with the last name Cooney, he would he was the senior attorney, and he would go to London, and they would put his junior attorney <gasps> Elsley in the nice room, and he would get the shit room Seriously? by the dumpster repeatedly. Oh my god, this is what happens in London when you have the last name Cooney, and I wow. totally get that. Maybe not as much anymore. Yeah. I have no idea. Probably still. But um, or the beginning of Crazy Rich Asians, right? Mm -hmm. With different, yeah, same colonial sort of weight. But oh, what was my point? Um, but so, oh, what, with those people that that find their identity through the antipathy against that other, sovereign, yeah. that is their sovereign. Then it In is a way. the hate. It is the because now the, she's gone and. Now who it's do you displace that Their onto? Their sovereign is the resistance. Yeah. They, find they, know, they find community in the resistance yes, against the yes. dominating. But yes. again, it's it's kind of, this is the French Revolution question mm -hmm. because they also know that there's going to be another sovereign yes. that yes. will take her place. And yeah. it will be Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's only when you cut off the head of the sovereign that you really know that there is not going to be another sovereign that will take their place. Yeah. But even so, no, there will be Napoleon. But then the place of yeah. Louis, well, yeah. Louis But to find himself differently. Yeah. Yes, but still had to run to Elba yeah. and die in his bath. But then, of course, yeah. we, you know, after Napoleon, you have the restoration of um, Charles mm -hmm. the Tenth. They brought him back. Yeah, Ninth. they brought someone back, and then that didn't work. So then and they then had they were like, well, uh, Louis uh, Louis Philippe, I believe, uh -huh. who is le, le roi citoyen, the yeah. citizen king, who dressed just like everyone else. Surprise! That didn't work. It's like yeah. I'm just like everyone else, but I have more than all of you. Like, but I'm just <laughs> like you. I can't imagine why this system didn't work. <laughs> So, and that's then, why then celebrities have to monumentalize themselves and make themselves look so different and yeah. and cover themselves with all of this extraordinary wealth. But, but this is also why Americans, even though we revolted from said monarchy, why people are still obsessed. Yes, obsessed is the with, word. Like, so many Americans were like, the queen, I'm watching it 24-7. And like, she was all over all of our magazines. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we realize, for better or for worse, there was a revolution against being a part of this. Yeah. But people are still obsessed with them. You know, honestly, that's I have a harder time I, I don't I don't entirely understand the but American connections with the in European a way, she's system. A celebrity. I think I think the, again, knowing the people that we know that have that that felt the loss of the sovereign, mm -hmm. um, a lot of them I think identified as part of this global community mm -hmm. where they're frequent travelers, um, spent time in the UK. Uh, internalized that I don't want to say and maybe I do want to say imperial globalist view um, again this kind of I think naively inoculated imperial yes. globalist view where it's like oh I can have the cultural capital without having the Racism. the uh, <laughs> the consequences yes. of this imaginary mm -hmm. um, which I don't necessarily think is possible, but it's also tricky for me to say. Essentially, my point is to say that I don't understand. I can speculate. Yeah. I don't understand. So it. I'm just real. I'm having a kind of a breakthrough moment right now. <gasps> I'm realizing Tell us. that because I the last couple of days people have brought up the word woke all the time. They're like, oh, and, and I just had a um, went over to you know how when you're a parent you have to hang out with other parents. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, everyone's so woke these days. And I just had that conversation. But it means that that being woke 
is being anti-sovereign and taking it down. And one of the reasons it's potentially so distasteful or unsettling for people. Scary. Because you're, scary. It's because you're, ta- you're kneecapping the sovereign and not replacing it with anything. And that sovereign could be the father of a family. It could be a religious leader. It could be, um, I don't know, Jeff Patriarchy, Bezos. I don't know. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. capitalism is good or bad, whatever. The status quo. Whatever yes. that is in any then, form. Then you can say retarded or not in a certain yeah. context. But as soon as you take that that away, then if you don't replace it with something else, you just create a vacuum that makes people feel extraordinarily uncomfortable about mm-hmm. where they fit in the world and they don't know what to do. Yeah. So if you're going to be in, if you're going to be woke, you better try to replace it with something or you will lose. Yeah, I think I think that actually is a very that's good our point. Problem. Because I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of times wokeness speaks to this or for a conservative American. Yeah. I think it speaks to this kind of deconstruction without replacement. Yeah. And I think that Cats is Cats and the, dogs that living is, together, you know, women becoming men and men becoming women yeah. and children deciding to have without, sex Without changes. a shepherd to oversee exactly. it. Exactly. Um, and I think that is a scary Why thing. Why does sheep? But I'd, <laughs> I'd say that is also the time of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, keeping in mind that in usual, you know, whenever we have... I say, to me, that just me reads a new monarch is going to come in. Yeah, exactly. Nine <laughs> times out of ten in, kind of, in the bad. contemporary, <laughs> in the, the, the world of the modern nation state, which is still something that we haven't talked yes. about, which, you know, maybe it's, maybe we're, we've passed that moment at this oh, time. we can get back to um, it. But in the moment of the revolutions of the modern nation state, where there has been an explicit attempt to reject previous views of what it meant to be a citizen, mm-hmm. what it meant to be a member of your national or globally national community. Cut off Charles the first head. Yeah, nine Cut times out of ten, it's, the, it's yeah. death. And not only is it death of the monarch, it's death of a f- lot of other people that yeah. do not deserve it and a system that was more oppressive than the one that yeah, comes back. Egypt yeah. case in point. Yeah. Yeah. Sisi versus, versus Mubarak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Way well, more oppressive. But this does not mean that there's no hope. Yes. It just means that... Perhaps traditional traditional ways of doing things have not worked out. And you cannot you I think the 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 one takeaway of again this kind of if we're gonna talk about a positive globalist view and what that can mean. I would um, love that, yes, please. You could this cannot be a utopian project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You cannot impose this on someone else. Samsara is real. Do you know the Buddhist term samsara? I do, but you're gonna have to explain it to me it's, a little bit It's more. just that the life sucks. It's the suffering and bitterness of life. And that if you are alive and not enlightened, you will never escape it. And there's no, people that try to change it almost always create worse karmic events. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to try to create a utopian reality, you will mm-hmm. fail. And in so doing, you will probably create something worse. Something worse. Yeah. So samsara is real. Don't ever expect if you're and just look inward. Look to yourself. That's the <laughs> Buddhist idea. Your enlightenment is within you. Yeah. And the samsara is Fix always yourself. going to be around yeah. you. Look to yourself first. That's the best kind of hope that I can subscribe to yeah. at the moment. Because again, this is we're also talking about. But how do we create about, sovereignty within ourselves? Is what that's what you're saying? Yeah, looking into yourself. So yeah. we have to all be mentally ill and anxious. No, and, I think you just have to acknowledge what's going on. I think part of being internal. mentally ill. Is a lot of people are very aware yeah and so it's coming to terms with that awareness yeah. and taking mindful moments of and acknowledging well samsara right that things are going to be shitty and terrible but not always so now and, you're saying and i i want to I, I think this is really interesting especially in the united states where we see mental illness all around us mm-hmm. every day as we walked from our place of mm-hmm. home especially to work, in los angeles especially yeah. in los angeles the home of the no. homeless Drug and addictions mental and... illness as a global reality is a product of our throwing off the shackles and yokes of sovereignty without 
any real replacement yet and we don't quite know what to do with it. Is that like if it's if if our safe place in the world is a fictional creation and we need that fiction and we can reify the safety through the fictionalization of a uh, of a common ideology then we don't have the ideology that binds us well, and so we're all just alone and twisting in the wind what's the basis Ill. for the, the, of course there AA. were still mentally yeah. ill people before yes. Like before liberal democracies, yeah. there were still people that were mentally ill. Yes. That may have been in the same situation, but usually there was kind of more community support because there had to be more community support. But again, it, it's complicated. I don't know the exact history of mental well, illness. And they probably thought of it differently. Maybe Absolutely. you were someone who had the abilities to see things. Or you were or possessed or by a witch a or demon. a jinn. Yeah. Or... But a lot of the mental illness that we see in the city of Los Angeles is a dropping out of the society as it exists yeah. a willful giving up yeah. of i cannot handle this late stage capitalism i can't handle yeah. the I responsibilities tried. i tried i'm done i'm gonna be here on the street numbed out in the best way that i can fuck it all and it's over and that's yeah. what we're seeing but so, i but like to your point of what what happens when you go to like you have an alcohol addiction or something and you go to aa or even rehab programs the number one thing is to look for an ideology like higher power, room. right? Yes. yes. You yes. have to give up yourself yes. to something. Jordan has yes. a great point. It's it is. God, you know, shit's gonna happen. Yeah. But God has a plan. Yeah. So like don't get too whatever wrapped up in it. Whatever you believe that mm-hmm. is. You know, whatever you believe it is, it can be, you know, just the universe or like nature or God or whatever. But you that's the first step mm-hmm. is right giving up yourself, making us giving up your, you know, for something bigger. Renouncing your personal sovereignty yeah. in a way, or aspects of your sovereignty. Because yeah. it's like, it's like our, we can't handle it, Yeah, in a sense. It's too much for us. I mean, th- this is, this is I think, one thing that we're all struggling with as people right now is I think our, our techni, our, techni- our technological means have mm-hmm. evolved faster than our means to understand them. And our temples have fallen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our churches have been revealed to be full of pedophiliac mm-hmm. abusers um in my case and and you're just like i'm not i'm not down with that anymore I'm, the patriarchy sucks and yeah. I'm, i reject it and when you reject it completely and you have nothing to replace it with then you you do feel lost and alone mm-hmm. and you turn to sovereigns of a different kind mm-hmm. that are empty maybe in, yeah in social part. media and yeah. weird celebrities that or somebody else's queen or someone else's queen, yeah. Kim Kardashian has sovereignty. <laughs> Kim Kardashian, yeah. She does. And as such, she has to make a monument out of herself. Yeah. And create a, something that looks inhuman. And I'm sure the burden. Beyond human. Being and, that and type we, of person. We all, we, just as we all, just as yeah, everyone knew. Burden. Do you remember that cartoon, the British cartoon, where it's like Louis Fourteenth? It's like all, him and his, all his ruffles and finery. And then it's like just him as like the egg person. Yes. <laughs> we all know that Kim Kardashian uses Photoshop and you know what? We're all yeah. okay with yeah. it. Yeah. Because that's what we want. Yeah. yeah. We all know that We don't want to see the real her. We yeah. all know that Trump is not the image of a healthy, <laughs> vital, <laughs> yeah. vital, vital, vitalic yeah. masculinity. Yeah. But he's still the patriarch par excellence. Yeah. Yeah. He I don't know. It. Trump's a different thing. Because yeah, Trump, I think, to me, like kind of reveals what, what, uh, the patriarchy has become. Yeah. And it's revealed for all of us to see with its fake hair and its orange skin and its diaper. I'd much rather have... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of okay with Kim Kardashian having sovereignty. I'd much rather yeah, her that. have sovereignty than Trump have yes. sovereignty. Agreed. I think it's the same. I think Kim and Trump are cut from the same cloth. I think you're probably right, but I think 
there is also a question of expression and kind. Yeah. yeah. They get their private islands. They get their private planes. They get to fuck over people with Of impunity. course, of course. Yeah, and course, she gets to buy her own private She gets fire to use department. how much water. Yeah, however yeah. much water she wants. So and... there's, this isn't a, you know. Okay. Is, yeah, but anyway. Let's quickly turn to Russia. Because <laughs> I think. <laughs> let's uplift us okay, all anyway, and turn to Russia. So let's talk about the war. But I think, you know, talking about this topic, that's the first thing that came to my mind uh-huh. was. Russia's claim. Competing claims of globalism, which we yes. could also say that is now, uh, thankfully, a bit more irrelevant, or, uh, irrelevant is the Islamic State. It's probably yes. the other big one in yeah. recent yeah. memory yeah. of a, 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 a ideology that claimed global domination. Mm-hmm. And, what's, and what the United States and other uh, quote-unquote liberal democracies mm-hmm. do with the IMF and other things to say, yeah. oh, who is... Who is a dem- democratic state? Who can be with yeah. us and against yeah. us? Yeah. Who is a capitalist state, not a communist state? And we can connect. But I lives. found it very telling when Putin recently had that, you know, Ukraine is used to be ours. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's ours. And we're annexing these territories. And it's, it's Russia. Mm-hmm. And then all of Europe, the European Union, came and the United States came and said, no, we don't agree with you. We're not calling it Russia. We refuse. Yeah. And so it's still Ukraine in our minds and our settings and our history books and on the map, it's going to say Ukraine. But in Russia, you'll have it as part of Russia. And so there's there has to be like that buy in. Mm-hmm. And we can speak about of other other lands. nation states, right, of calling, is it Palestine? Is it Israel? Is it yeah. how do we line up these borders and, and territories? Where, where the most and... important buy in, I think, is. And this is the most complicated buy in. It's on the ground in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It's the people that have actively chosen to resist Russia. Mm -hmm. It's the people that have chosen to resist Russia, but then want to be back in their home. And in order to get back in their home and resume their normal lives have said, sure, I'll be Russian. What what does it matter? Like, I don't care. Like, it's not affecting me. But it's true. It it makes so much sense. Maybe Putin's fighting an old game, an ancient Egyptian game. Yeah, he is. That you, in the intermediate period, you claim to be lord of the two lands no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. You start with that. And you continue with that mindset to make your fiction a reality. Well, if you say it enough, I guess, uh, and then you conquer and you keep saying it, eventually is... It, it is real. right. <laughs> well, and here, I think here's the terrifying thing about the age that we currently live in is that we're able to have opinions that transcend mm-hmm. these older kind of two lands beliefs because of the flow of information. Yeah. And if we were to look at a state of collapse that would remove the flow of information, oh, yeah. so remove our technological devices, remove the internet from us. When would we have found out then Putin, Russia even invaded yeah, Ukraine? Yeah. We're an ocean away. We wouldn't even know. Exactly. We and, wouldn't even and, know they existed. And it would be so easy to erase yep. the so- the state, yep. the existence of the state of Ukraine and its sovereignty. We couldn't help them. Out of the history yeah. books, and it would be forgotten. So People easily. used to have globes, and then they do an update for the globe, and they send you different things, and you you well, just like paste it on. Yeah. yeah. And do well, it in your like, country. We like growing <laughs> up in time. underfunded public schools. USSR was still on a lot of our maps and yeah. stuff. I remember and getting like, a new globe yeah. when the USSR fell. Like you know, and like. West Germany and all this stuff and and then it's like that's not right you know like in the the going to you know in high school and stuff Mm -hmm. you're like why does our book still have this and they just never bought new ones but but yeah so I think the point of what we have accessible to us and seeing the resistance versus in the Egyptian perspectives we don't get that I think I think again I will perhaps conclude yes. by saying that I think Russia is an illuminating case because it presents a counterpoint to a capitalist, Western mm-hmm. capitalist global mm-hmm. ideology and Western capitalist globalization. And I do not think, and I want to make it very clear that I do not think that salvation is to be found mm. in the victory of Western capitalist globalization. Yeah. It's rather 
Russia and the Islamic State is a symptom of its the inadequacies of the capitalist model mm -hmm. of globalism. And we yeah. need to define this. We need to let go of capitalism as an identifying mm -hmm. be all end all without the being the good. Yeah, without Maybe sovereign. Without so being is, a I was going to say, is capitalism be... our sovereign in a sense? Well, yeah, you yeah. know, it was to you know? some extent, you know, in, I, I don't I, feel I, it is. <laughs> obviously it's not. But I, I want to say that it was, there were similar kind of beliefs, there were similar ideology formed around it. Or democracy. When there was the Soviet Union to compete against. Yeah. Um, and also when this, where, when there was the Soviet Union to, to compete against and when certain people's, a large percentage of people's opinions and uh, voices were not being heard. Yes. And so now, how does that change in the common, the current era? And mm -hmm. it has to certainly change. And I think the, not the path to salvation, but the path forward is to first and foremost, not be resistant to change and mm -hmm. to incorporate those new perspectives into what a globalist worldview could be. Because if not, you're doomed to fail in the first place. Yeah. And there's just no we'll hope. If, if you refuse, there's just no hope. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that's the only path forward. We'll see in the upcoming election. <laughs> How, <laughs> how that works out well it's gonna be a shit show yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can revisit this topic uh yeah. in a year and it will all work make out. a special effort to live in the moment and enjoy our yes. lives before 2024 thank god we live in california yeah. is all i have to say and start a garden i'm gonna buy some some land Cara, how, how, does, like tomatoes. Yeah. how does your garden grow <laughs> Well, I say our garden doesn't have sun, so this is not this is not good. What did I just say to you? I'm like, yes, I get my groceries in a box every every week, and that that'll continue through the apocalypse, right? I don't think. It yeah. Will. So I need to start planting some tomatoes. Yes. Okay. Well, on on that note, I think this was a very illuminating conversation. I yeah. had a really fun time. Yeah. Um, do you plan on writing this up? Like, what's your next goals? Or? I have two monographs, and this is not part of either okay. of them. If my if I do, find I think this would be a cool grad class. If you yeah. want to teach something, yeah. for I always am. I always yeah. am pushing yeah. for Jonathan to teach more grad classes because I don't get to see him otherwise. Well, once global antiquity really gets going, his classes are always great. Yeah, the, and this so this is, would be a cool. This yeah. is exactly why actually I brought this up because class. I think it would be a, a good question, an engaging and we could question. Not just do Egypt. You could do exactly. global antiquity. That global antiquity and would, what's would be global. able to address. Yeah. As we, all know, as, as we all know, and I think as Kara taught me well, oh the best way to uh, turn something into a productive area of research in, their, in a position that it could potentially become a book is to teach a class on yes. it. Yeah. So I think, hopefully I will teach a class, yes. but again, because of my current position okay. here, I might not teach a class. Instead, I might just learn from faculty in across the division of the humanities and potentially the social sciences as well mm -hmm. and be able to to write it up that way yeah. unfortunately i will say right now i do not have time to even work on my first book which I is know. like i'm like all ready to go and like had a publisher well, and then just like we'll talk yeah we'll um, talk because most of that is just finding a system that you can set up so that it kind of like passive income time. <laughs> not that you don't not that you're not working on it but it's you have to create a situation in which you have to work on it and yeah. somebody is waiting for it. Exactly. And if you do that, the book will happen. Yeah. If you don't and it's all waiting on you, nothing's going to fucking happen. And I think the reason why that has not happened yet is because the Global Antiquity Initiative is yeah. still forthcoming and yeah. it's been forthcoming for now a, a year. Mm -hmm. And I did not, to be completely honest, I did not work well during the pandemic. I do not work well in I isolation. I, I need didn't dialogue. I did not. Yeah. Um, I need colleagues that I, I need to that be not in I my support apartment. and support me and that I, I thrive yeah. by means of, um, yes. as both of you guys are. And um, 
so but yeah we'll see what my future holds yeah um, well. I'm, I'm optimistic about some things pessimistic about others <laughs> that's fine that's, that's life. existence yeah, <laughs> yeah that's life hit, you know the yeah. roulette wheel is constantly yeah. spinning yeah. each day as it may <laughs> yes well on that we shall end as our guest we'll let you take us out with i'll say this is and you say afterlives of ancient egypt okay okay so that's it this is afterlives of ancient egypt with kara cooney Perfect. Yeah, you did it. Said the name of the show on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Well, thank you, you all it. for listening. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms, so subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.